0: Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on Toe. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a cast sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, Toe listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase. That's shopify.com slash theories.
1: Yeah, it does feel like office hours. That's what I, yeah, that's one thing I enjoy about watching, yeah, watching your podcasts great fun and it's in, and it's informative for that reason. You go into some depth and it makes it really interesting. I just feel like I'm taking an exam. <laughs> it's a little stressful.
0: I just finished up an interview with Kevin Knuth. Kevin Knuth is a physicist at the University of Albany. Someone who I reached out to because he's one of the rare individuals interested in the phenomenon of ufos aliens uaps whatever you would like to call them and he's a respectable physicist more than respectable in fact i didn't realize how excellent creative originative he is until i started researching about him after i had already booked the interview and then i found out that not only is he interested in aliens which is It's not a goal of this channel at all. I'm more interested in the physics of aliens and what they have to say about consciousness as well as our role in the universe. Not only is he interested in that, but he's done significant research into the fundamental laws of physics with him and his colleagues conceiving of a theory called influence theory. We'll get into that. The conversation is pretty much two parts, aliens and then fundamental physics. I didn't expect to get along with Kevin anywhere near as much as I did. He probably, to me was one of the guests I felt the most relaxed with, for whatever reason. Maybe our personalities jive at some unconscious level. I don't know what it is, but hopefully you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I had having it. Please, if you're interested in seeing or listening to more conversations like this, then consider donating at patreon.com slash Kurt Literally every one of those donations helps, not only financially, but motivationally. Thank you and enjoy.
1: I watched several interviews over the last few months since we first um, connected. When was it? Early, I guess, late fall or something. Mm-hmm. So I've watched several interviews. They're always, they're really engaging and, and interesting. And and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I feel jealous. You get to talk to all these interesting people. <laughs> Two hours of just one-on-one, which is quite nice, right? That's hard to hard to get.
0: Which one did you like the most? If you don't mind me asking.
1: Yeah, um, that, no, that's a good question. Um,
0: and please, I don't mean to put you on the spot. If you're actually, if you're being overly polite and saying that you watched it, I don't no, mean to put no, you on the no. spot. No,
1: no, no, no. I'm trying to. I'm trying. To, I, I enjoyed Eric Weinstein's. That was. He was a lot of fun to watch. Um. Yeah, he was quite dynamic.
0: I've been super excited to talk to you. When I first contacted you, it was because you had a paper. Still do paper out on uaps I believe they're called which is the ufos essentially for those who are listening analyzing them and you're a physics professor so you're not some let's say loon from the periphery and i thought okay that's interesting because very few academics actually pursue this and i assume you're tenured so very few tenured people let alone non-tenured pursue this and then i realized you had some papers This is a channel on theories of everything, which means we explore the foundations of mathematics, the foundations of physics. You have many papers, you've been thinking about this for quite some time, so you turned out to be far more interesting than I had initially thought. And that's not a slight, that's actually a huge compliment, because I see that you're able to derive spin and probability and space-time. When I say probability, I mean the way that it's used in quantum mechanics and momentum from relatively simple ingredients. I was just reading about that recently. That is fun. We're gonna talk about that later. If you don't mind.
1: No, that sounds, that's great. It's one of my favorite topics, so...
0: Thank you for coming on.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: For those listening or watching, there's going to be an exordium on aliens first. If you're mainly interested in the foundations of physics, then look at the timestamps and view or listen to accordingly. We're going to talk about aliens. Why don't you tell us about the Ben Thune encounter from 1951?
1: Uh, Right. So that that encounter happened um, in 1951. Um, Graham Bethune was um, he was a Navy Navy pilot. They were summoned to Iceland, to Reykjavik, to because the the in Iceland, they were having problems with a UFO operating in the area. And, um, I think it was operating in a, maybe near an airport or somewhere sensitive. I don't recall exactly what the difficulty was. And they were summoned there to basically check this out and help them out with this problem. Um, they got there, not, not, didn't see anything. The thing was, the thing was gone by that time. And they were heading back across the Atlantic from Iceland, um, toward Newfoundland. And while they were flying, um, they had, they saw lights on the surface of the water on the ocean below and looked like city lights. And at first they thought they were, they were out of, um, off course. And so they double checked their course and realized, no, they're on course. And they thought, well, there must be ships, maybe naval ships operating in the area or something. And, and, um, and, as they got closer the um these lights were basically it was a disc shaped light um a ring, i guess, and it appeared to be under the water and as they approached this thing, this thing shot up from the sea surface to their altitude in a very short period of time, like a matter of um a second or two and the and this it was basically a large, um, large disc. I think he described it as being uh, 300 feet across. I probably I needed I actually printed out my paper here to remind myself some of these details because there's a lot of cases and um, yeah. So it was several hundred feet across. Um, the disc was slightly below their altitude, so they could actually see this disc. It had um, like glowing around the periphery and as the object moved um the the color of the light would change so um and i think it's been described as looking like a plasma so this object basically was with them for several for several minutes they basically steered um the one of the i one, one person wanted to steer toward it so they they steered toward it and um and eventually the thing took off but it was seen by pretty much everybody on on board. Um, I think there were like on the order of 20 people or so on board uh, who witnessed this thing. So this thing then took off and they estimated its speed um, as it left to be about 1,500 miles an hour, which is about what was picked up on radar. They were close enough to Newfoundland that they were able to detect this on radar and they confirmed that later.
0: When they say that it changed colors of the lights as it moved. Yeah. Is that akin to the Doppler effect, or is that something different?
1: It's something different, I think, because it was it would go from like a violet a red violet to a yellow, and basically within those ranges and And I don't remember which way it went when it was when it was moving, it was yellow, when it was stationary, it was red. I think that's basically how it was that that detail I might not recall properly.
0: What do you attribute as the cause of that or the reason for that?
1: I don't know. I, I mean, it's hard to figure out. You know, I try to treat th- these observations as evidence, right? We're basically trying to do some kind of physics detective work to try to figure out what is this thing? How is it operating? How does it fly? You know, these are all the questions. How does it move so fast? These are the questions that come to me as a physicist and um a lot of times these the light emitted by these things appears to be a plasma so um, it could be that you're basically the object is ionizing the air around the craft and that's what's emitting the light and then as the object moves you basically maybe it's changing the electric fields around the object and and then changing the um, the excitation in the gas hmm.
0: okay professor <clears throat> How did you get interested in this subject? You're not a fool. You're not just some loon. You're not some, what someone would think of as the stereotypical person who studies alien encounters or professes that aliens exist or UFOs or whatever it may be. How did you get into, what, what started you off on this journey?
1: I'm a physicist, so I'm curious. And I'm often surprised at how uncurious some of my colleagues are. But the, yeah, so I'm curious about these things, and I've always been curious. And when I went to graduate school, it would have been in the fall of 1988, it was probably about our second, first or second week in graduate school. So it was in September of 88. There was a um, cattle mutilation. Um, I was at Bozeman, Montana and the there was a cattle mutilation and i'd never heard of anything like a cattle mutilation i grew up in wisconsin and we have cows in wisconsin and and i've heard of cow tipping but um, who's gonna mutilate a cow that's horrible so i had i was pretty shocked by this and there were a lot of people um concerned about this on the news they didn't know whether it was alien or if um if there were satanists involved and there were lots of theories floating around so we were discussing this in the um we were discussing this in the hallway then the new graduate students the ones who basically moved moved to montana and had never heard of this before were discussing this and um, and it was a very heated discussion, very passionate and everybody's upset and worried and wondering what the heck's going on. What kind of crazy place did we just move to um, and are gonna have to spend four or five years here. So um, <clears throat> so this was really our concern. And while we were talking, one of the professors came out of his office and um, came down the hall to see what was, you know, we were so excited about. And we told him what we were discussing. And he said, yeah, that's, that's interesting," he said. "It's the, this happens here. We don't really know. They never figure out how the cows were mutilated and why. And there's very often UFOs seen in the area around the time. So it's so it's interesting, but it's never figured out, and we just move on. And you know, we I don't I don't think that helped calm us at all. And he then said, but what's very strange, what's even more interesting, he said, I have a a number of friends in the Air Force um, up at Malmstrom Air Force Base, and they have trouble with UFOs flying over the missile sites, shutting down our ICBMs. And this was in 1988. This is 1988. I was told this by a professor at Montana State University. And now... Now, I'd never heard this before. In fact, I didn't hear about this publicly until I think around 2010 when Robert Hastings had a press conference um, with uh, people from the Air Force, from Molmstrom Air Force Base. And so, to be honest, we, when the professor walked away, we, we laughed about it. I mean, you know, there's UFOs shutting down nuclear missiles. and He was a professor of what? What was his specialty? He was a physics, was a physics professor.
0: What particular field I of physics I don't
1: or... remember who it was because it was my first week there and I didn't know all the professors. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have I have a guess who it could be, but I don't, but I don't want to say because yes, because yes, yes. I don't know for sure. Yeah,
0: you know have you mean? ever tried to reach out to that person afterward?
1: Um, no, I haven't. Um, it's unfortunately I'm at that age where a lot of my professors are have passed away, so. So I didn't try reaching out. I probably, it probably would be a good idea, though. Okay, continue. That's a good suggestion. Thank you. <clears throat> um. Yeah. So we, um, so we laughed about it, and then it, it was kind of a running gag through the whole semester, you know. And, and oh, and you know, there are UFOs shutting down our nuclear missiles, and you know, we would always giggle about that. Uh, but. It really just seemed unthinkable because our our mili- these are restricted these are restricted areas. If, if we have somebody coming in, shutting down our nuclear missiles, our military. If a foreign nation did this, we would go to war over it, and probably nuclear war because the nuclear missiles are involved. And so, so it's unthinkable that we wouldn't do anything. And so, it was really hard to believe. And. It just, you know, I just remember the event. It was just something somebody said once and, and went on. And it wasn't until um, maybe 2015 or so that I was preparing for an astronomy class. And I had, we were going to talk about astrobiology. And I had some students asking me about the possibilities of aliens visiting Earth and and wanted me to talk about that. So I was online looking for papers, anything that I could, you know, could use to put together a, a reasonable lecture on the topic. And I stumbled on the um, Robert Hastings um, press conference, and where he had, I think, six people um, all working and, at nuclear missile sites. I think three of them were from Malmstrom Air Force Base. And And I started watching this, and I was just watching with disbelief, thinking, oh, my God, I heard about this in 1988. And the professor who told me then said it was going on then. It was in the present, happening in 1988. And these people in the press conference, um, Robert Salas, Salas was one of the prominent people. Um, He was talking about an event in 1966. And I thought, well, wait a minute, you can't have a crazy story like this, if somebody's making this up in nineteen sixty six, it's not gonna persist until nineteen eighty-eight. These are professionals and they're serious professionals. They have to have, you know, clearance and specialized training and 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 these are secure areas, they they're not they're not nutcases and they're not gonna joke about things like this, and certainly not for twenty years. And and I thought there has to be something to this. Something must be going on. And, and I thought, this really has to be real. I can't see any other way around it. Um, and I can imagine, and at that point, I could imagine that we don't do anything because the assumption is that it can't be real, so it's not doing anything. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's why there's been a lot of inaction and, and lack of interest.
0: I'm going to share my screen and then you're going to, if you don't mind, please tell me what is going on here. Okay. With this.
1: Ah, right. So basically what I'm basically doing here is if you, let's see. So they were estimating, they, they, so Graham Bethune this is, said that it and, took. Yeah,
0: this is from 1951. This right, is not so took, from Japan or Nimitz.
1: Right. So so here the panel C. I work from panel C because so they were they estimated the um, the distance to be about five to seven miles away. So he wasn't exactly sure how far away it was, and so what I did basically is I I used a Basically, he's estimating this looking out from the plane. He's looking down at an angle in front of the plane, and so I, I treated that angle to have some uncertainty. So he's going to be off by, I think I say what it is in the in the paper. He's off, you know, potentially off by so many degrees. So, so what I did is I did a Monte uh, Monte Carlo sampling where I basically randomly sampled um, angles with a Gaussian distribution about the angle that, you know, he would have been looking or thought that he was looking. And um, and that gives you a distribution of distances. So I'm basically doing a Monte Carlo sampling to um, take into account potential errors. My question, the, the question I've always asked when, you know, when pilots are, Confronted with these stories is my the question that comes to my mind is how how wrong could they be? Um, these are trained individuals um, millions of dollars go into their training, which doesn't mean they're perfect um but but then then that begs the question how imperfect are they how how wrong could they be about you know some of these facts and and I can imagine you know when so for instance, if they estimate the size of the object as being 300 feet across or something um how wrong could you be with that well maybe it was 100 feet across but it certainly wouldn't have been 30. i mean nobody's gonna mistake a 30-foot disc for a 300 foot disc well you wouldn't even be able
0: to see that if you're five miles away approximately so he's five
1: miles away and he's looking down and he's looking down yeah Yeah.
0: five miles away huh and he was able to
1: see that it looked
0: like city lights
1: yeah it looked like it was a circle circular group of lights
0: Hmm. 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 Okay. Now let's look at this. Then you estimated the altitude. And also, by the way, just as a technical aside, why are you, are you using Monte Carlo? It seems like, just help edify me here. seems like you have a Gaussian distribution or some sort of distribution. Why not just use that distribution? Why do you have to then sample it so that it's spiky at the edges?
1: Oh, I, I use, I could have used that distribution. The problem is that you'd then have to, in estimating, um... In estimating the speed of the object, I then have to basically use the uncertainties in each of those quantities that go into calculating the speed of that object. And so it requires transforming, you know, all of these probability distributions, which is quite tedious. Okay. And so doing uh-huh. it with Monte Carlo, doing it with Monte Carlo, I'm going to get appropriate answers, and it's a faster way to do it. Otherwise, I might have to take approximations and things like this to pull it off analytically, which I didn't want to have to do. I see the computer can't do that.
0: It's not as simple as putting it into Wolfram Wolfram Alpha or Mathematica. No,
1: not always, because you've got to. I mean, you're you're um, you're taking derivatives and inverses and things like this. You've got so.
0: Okay, and if you see me looking off over here, it's that I also have some of the studies on this side as well. So please, ah, okay. I'm not, you're the only thing I'm paying attention to. No, that's fine. <laughs> then you got times going on here. You have altitude and you have minimum log 10. Okay. Well, that's the acceleration. That's acceleration. the acceleration. Oh, All yeah. right, Okay, altitude and times. And these are referring to, the altitude is referring to what?
1: The altitude is referring to the, basically the altitude of the craft. So how how far it went up from the sea
0: surface. Great. And then the time is referring to how long did it take from... Sea that's how long to it that took. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Simple, simple, simple. Great. Now, let's... Let's get to Japan Airlines Flight 1628 in
1: 1986. Right. That was, That's another instance where I knew about that incident in 1986. I remember watching it on NBC News with Tom Brokaw. And I remember... Um, him discussing this and then playing some of the um, some of the audio from the pilot uh, and the air, air traffic control, and I remembered thinking that this is really pretty amazing. You've got a you've got a um, you've got a large um, jet. What is it? Seven forty seven. I guess it was um, and. It's basically flying from, they were flying from Paris to Tokyo, bringing Beaujolais Nouveau. So here, now we can all have a giggle. Ha ha ha, he's got a plane full of uh, wine, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But, (laughs) so. so, That's what
0: the aliens were after all uh, That's right. right. And you were an undergrad at this point? I was an undergrad at the
1: point, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Studying math and physics. Math and physics, physics, yeah. Okay, great, great, great.
1: Yeah, so so the um and you can actually still find the um news reports online, the videos people have put them online, but the um so as they're flying, they're approaching Anchorage, Alaska, and um they see some lights in the distance basically approaching the plane. And so they're concerned, so they call um air traffic to control to see if they have any traffic for them. And air traffic control says negative. Um, they said, well, we see traffic <laughs> there. We've got um, several craft approaching. And so they're very concerned about this. As so they're approaching Anchorage, they have um, two craft approaching. And then um, and then shortly thereafter, a larger craft approaches. And the thing is walnut-shaped and glowing. And at one point, it's it's in front of the aircraft. And the pilot described it as so big that they couldn't see out of the windscreen so i mean you're you're a pilot of a jet, and you've got a, something in front of you that you can't see beyond That's a scary prospect um so he's panicked and and calling air traffic control and they don't they're not picking anything up on radar except his plane um and at some point, the military is contacted and gets involved and on military height finding radar, they pick up um, the larger craft on the plane and the airplane. So they pick up both objects. So, so the, so the military is able to detect this with their radar. Um, were you able (laughs) to estimate the size of the craft? Um, no, uh, he estimated it to be, um, the size of, I think it was three 747s. So it's basically the size of an aircraft carrier. So you've got In a sky you've nice. got a flying aircraft carrier shaped like a walnut um <laughs> now you then you have to ask how wrong can the pilot be? <laughs> I mean it's all right, maybe it wasn't as big as an aircraft carrier, maybe it was just the size of a destroyer. still, that's pretty amazing, right um, He
0: said it was glowing,
1: I and mean, glowing yeah, and this was at night um i I don't know what time it happened. I don't recall. Mm-hmm. that's all that's all recorded but i don't recall off the yeah, top yeah, of my sure. head is that
0: it with the japan airlines flight or is there more
1: no well the thing the the interesting thing is the object follows him for 40 minutes so it isn't just like i saw it it was gone no this thing basically kept track kept along with the airplane for 40 minutes and it basically moved mm-hmm. around the aircraft it moved around the airplane um as time went by so It would go, so the military height-finding radar, and this radar data exists, Um, you can look at this, the military height-finding radar is sweeping every 10 seconds, and the um, craft is about seven and a half miles away from the airplane, and in one sweep, it'll be at one o'clock, in the next sweep, 10 seconds later, the thing could be at six o'clock. And so the thing was literally jumping around this airplane and the pilots panicked. He actually takes some evasive maneuvers at some point um, to try to evade the object and thought that he had. He didn't see it. And the um, Air Force comes on and goes, no, it's behind you. <laughs> it's still following you. It's behind you. So um, the thing basically followed him for 40 minutes.
0: And and then he went down and landed.
1: <clears throat> when you said
0: that the pilot said that he couldn't see beyond the ship, if it's five miles away and it's the size of a carrier, why can't you see beyond it? You can see the edges of it, no?
1: Oh well, this one was moving around, so so at some point, at one point, it was very close. He had said, and I see, it was I see. initially he okay. couldn't see initially he couldn't see beyond it.
0: So initially, how close do you estimate it was to him?
1: I have no idea. Um,
0: okay. Let's say that's... it was. The size of a carrier, then it would ha- have to be. I'm it sure that's a, si- be that's a simple trigonometry.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, you could figure out how close it would have to be. For mm. much of the event, it was about seven and a half miles away, according to the radar. Mm. And the sweeping—I'm sorry—it wasn't ten seconds; it was twelve seconds. So it was every twelve seconds. Great. Okay, this data exists,
0: meaning that it's public.
1: Yeah, the radar—the radar data. Yeah. The,
0: how does that go online? Does someone leak it or does someone release it?
1: Right. It was um John Callahan who was FAA chief of accidents and investigations at the time. Um they basically reenacted the situation in one of their um one of their um testing centers and they record the and that's where the data comes in so they can reenact it. And then they rec- he recorded that and basically saved that himself. He saved a copy for himself. And he claims that at one point, the um, President Reagan's scientific advisory team um, met with him along with um, CIA, CIA officials and FBI and a number of people, and they confiscated all of the data he had, um, although he didn't tell them about everything. He had some of it stashed away. But they met with him and they were very excited because they said that this was the longest um, encounter that they had um, had any data for.
0: Okay, let's get to the Nimitz encounter. I'm sure many people are familiar because that's David Fravor, if I'm correct. Okay. And that's in 2004, I believe. Right. Okay. Why don't you give a brief rundown for the people who are unacquainted with this?
1: All right, so in two thousand and four you had the the Nimitz um, carrier group was was s- um, off the coast of San Diego, california um, about uh, about a hundred miles one hundred and fifty miles off the coast and um, senior Chief Kevin Day was um, operating radar uh, for much of this time and for <clears throat> Overall, for a period of, of a couple of weeks, he was picking up um, anomalous um, radar targets appearing, basically just appearing on his radar at about 80,000 feet, which is really very of very high altitude. Um, jet airplanes, passenger jets fly around 35,000 feet. So these radar targets are appearing at about 80,000 feet, and They typically were appearing south of Catalina Island or near San Clemente Island, and then they would track south at about 100, 120 knots um, down to Guadalupe Island in in Mexico, where they would then drop off as radar. And so nobody knows what happened to them after that. Um, So having an aircraft um, flying at 80,000 feet at only a hundred knots is almost impossible. There's not much air up there. So you, you need to go much faster to have lift. So that's already anomalous. So this anomalous in the other direction, they're moving too slowly, (laughs) right? Um, So, and Kevin Day had observed these and, um, you know, they weren't, in the operating they weren't where they were operating, so this wasn't really a big concern at this point. Um and at one point he um he he well he said that there were times when they would drop from they well they came in at eighty thousand feet when they appeared. They would they would drop down to twenty eight thousand feet and that's when they would track south at a at hundred knots. So so even at 28,000 feet, you aren't going to be flying at a, a plane at 100 knots. But from 28,000 feet, they would periodically drop down to the sea surface. And that amount of time to go from tw- from basically at a constant altitude, 28,000 feet, to sea surface, which is zero, um, they would do that in about 0.78 seconds. So it was less than a second to go from basically... Rest in the y direction at twenty eight thousand feet to rest in the y direction at zero feet okay now to interject, how long would that take if it was free falling? um
0: uh, I'd have to do the calculation, but it would be let's say estimate it to a significant digit. It's fine. you can be off by a factor of ten
1: right, so the time is going to be um basically twice the height twice the height divided by the acceleration. the acceleration's about ten. At 10 meters per second squared, 28,000 feet. 2 times 8,000 is 16,000. And now I'm going to divide that by 10 meters per second squared. And I'll get, so that's 16,000 divided by 10, which is 1,600. And then we take the square root of that. So that's going to be uh, 40. 40 seconds? 40 yeah. seconds. Okay. Okay. Side. They did it in one
0: second, so that means
1: yeah, less than less than one second. second. Yeah.
0: Okay. And and they came to and they came, to a, and they came to a stop. Do it. <laughs> Let's say our fastest accelerating technology downward, whatever that is, whatever kind of craft that is. How fast, approximately, do you think we could do it?
1: Right. If you could dive at ten G um, acceleration and then slow down for the other 10G, then um, you're basically going, you're accelerating halfway so we can find the time to the halfway point. Um, but if you work this out, it's it's one quarter, um, it'll be one quarter AT squared. So so the total time is going to be basically, so we've got 32,000 divided by 100. So that's 320 seconds squared. So then now we have to take the um, basically the square root of 320. So it's, eh, it's less than 400, the square root of 400 is 20. So it's going to be a little less than 20 seconds.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay,
1: let's take a look
0: at some more. I'm going to share my screen with you and just so what are we looking at over here? This is the Nimitz video. Then we got different models. And we have what is log z? What is log l? What is a? What is and so on?
1: So All right. Yeah. So what we're doing up. is we're testing different um, dynamic uh, kinematic models. These are these are basically in in this section of the paper we're analyzing the the video that was released by the U.S. Navy and the last the last few seconds of that video, thirty two frames or something. Um, the object is locked on, it begins the, the, the targeting system is locked onto the object and it loses lock and the object takes off to the left. Now it's not a very impressive departure. Um, and none of these videos are nearly as interesting as what the pilots describe these things as doing. Um, so I'm, I'm convinced we were given probably the most boring videos they could find, um, and very possibly videos they didn't expect anything anomalous to to come from. So that acceleration doesn't look very dramatic. But um, so we so we basically tested several models. One of one of the models is that it it accelerated um, just accelerated off the screen, so it's constant acceleration. Another one was it accelerated for a shorter period of time and then um, just coasted off the screen at constant velocity. And, um, and so those are the basic models we, we were testing.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And so and why
0: do you think it is that they didn't, you believe that they have more interesting footage and they chose to release this, they being the U S government.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm just guessing that based on what the pilots have, have, you know, what numerous pilots have said in these types of encounters, um, these things behave much more amazingly than, than the footage they you know, they released. So David Fravor, when he encountered the, the Tic Tac object and it finally took off, he said it accelerated like it was shot from a gun and it was gone in, you know, out of sight in two seconds. So um, clearly this acceleration isn't that fast. So it's so. So that's what Why I mean do you by I think that. it is
0: that they released the video, if you were to speculate
1: at all, the
0: U.S. government
1: um that i don't that I don't know I know that um Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon were working on the inside to try to get some of this information out um because they weren't able to freely discuss this um, um you know amongst the intelligence community so and so there's probably multiple concerns there I mean one is that if you're if you're not able to you know, you've, the Navy was having problems with these things, right? But they're not able to discuss, you know, these objects and have it taken seriously. So now, now what do you do? Um, In 2015, for example, the, they were having near day, nearly daily encounters with UFOs. Um, And so you've got pilots who are not trained for these types of encounters. Some of these were happening in the Persian Gulf area while they were operating, you know, so that's a You've got a military campaign going on. These guys are going on bombing runs in Syria and they've got to fly through UFOs over the Persian Gulf and then go to Syria and then conduct their military operations and come back. And that's a huge hazard. I mean, you don't you don't need a pilot shaken, you know, from a UFO encounter and then go into a war zone. That's Uh extremely dangerous. And so that's one reason why when people say, oh, they're just drones and the U.S. is just testing them. No, you're gonna test them by putting pilots in danger in a war zone. Um mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. What are some other arguments against them being drones? I mean, first their their accelerations that we estimated are are way off the charts. You um people can't handle much more than you know, than ten ten to fifteen um G's for any period of time. Uh, thirteen G's, um The new F-35 fighter, I think, is rated for 13.5 Gs. And at 13.5 Gs, its wings will rip off. So you can't accelerate an airplane more than about 13, 15 G. Um, Some missile frames can handle handle higher accelerations. Um, They can maneuver up to about 30 Gs of acceleration. And some can withstand, um, structurally withstand, up to about 60 Gs. Um, so most of our equipment can 't handle our equipment can 't handle more than a hundred g's and um, and that 's in one
0: direction, let alone stopping and then turning around
1: yeah well I mean it doesn 't matter whether you stop and turn around because you 've got so many g 's here and then so many g 's again so they 're doing
0: As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off. Plus, free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you, Mosh for sponsoring this video.
1: And over and over again. It's, it's insane.
0: And what are and the G's associated with these crafts?
1: Well, the, the highest one we estimated was about 5,700 G's. Um, that was the one picked up on radar by um, Senior Chief Kevin Day while he was on the USS Princeton with the Nimitz Carrier Group. And that's the one that drops from 28,000 feet to sea level in 0.78 seconds. So you're looking at over 5,000 Gs of acceleration in that case. The other situations were a bit lower, um, I think the lowest ones we had were maybe, I think, the, um, the video from the 2004 Nimitz video when, it, when the object, when the targeting computer loses track and the thing takes off to the left, you're looking at about 78 Gs. The object's moving to the left and away from the, from the airplane at that point.
0: Razor blades are like diving boards. Just make sure to add them to the cart plus one hundred free blades when you head to h e n s o n s h a v i n g dot com slash everything and use the code everything hmm see what strikes me about this paper is going through it it the mathematics isn't beyond high school or beyond first year that's for sure, and I'm right. wondering why is it why hasn't an analysis like this, which seems like anyone could have done it, why hasn't it been done before? Is um, it simply I the think, stigma against analyzing I think aliens? that's
1: the problem. I mean, you've got, you've got numerous capable physicists who have commented on these things, and you've got enough information to basically to do a back-of-the-envelope estimation of the acceleration, and they're more willing to say, well, it's probably an atmospheric effect. Who knows? Who knows what it could be? That's usually the response you get from a professional physicist, which is problematic. <clears throat> this is a calculation they ought to be able to do. Who else in the physics community, professional physics
0: community, is studying this besides you and your co-author?
1: Ah, well, let's see. My um, A colleague of mine, Matthew Shadagas at um, University of Albany, is also studying this. Um, other physicists, I know of a few, um, people, let's see, I don't know if they're all physicists, um, some are engineers. Do you know of any physicists who are interested,
0: but tell you this behind closed doors?
1: Yeah, that's basically the, the situation. You've got a number of people who are interested in studying this and, the problem is there's a paucity of data we don't we don't have any real data to work with um for the most part. You have you know witness testimony, and some of that paper is based on witness testimony and we we did the best we could with it um and and I think it gives you a ballpark estimate of what was observed but but you have to you really want. Um, You really want radar data. You really want to be able to triangulate positions with multiple cameras. You want to do all sorts of things like this. That would be ideal. Are
0: these spacecraft getting faster with time? What I mean by that is, let's say someone was analyzing Earth's crafts. I imagine that what they would see is our top speed would increase over the decades, because it has. However, with these crafts do you see them as being predominantly the same since the 60s or since the 50s since you asked that's a good analyzing? question
1: i mean i don't think that we have that information um you'd have to look over look at them for a very long period of time and there have been sightings of objects like this and if they are alien spacecraft which we really haven't proven that that's the case yet um the you know if they are alien spacecraft then we wouldn't know you know, from some of the Roman reports of flying shields uh, we aren't able to estimate speeds and and accelerations in those cases. We don't have that detailed information so what's the Romans report of flying shields uh there's several there's several reports in Roman history of um orb orbis Clapeus i think they're called um but they're called they're flying shields basically. And so I can send you references for this. There's a um there's a couple of papers, um one on UFOs in classical antiquity and um and another paper on the same topic.
0: Yes. Do you mind making a note to send that to me later? Yeah,
1: certainly. <clears throat> You're only sending me about Romans or
0: are you sending me is there a list of UFO sightings or Potential UFO sightings across history.
1: There's a book um, by Jacques Vallée. Um, I keep hearing called, about this person. Called Wonders, called Wonders in there. the Sky. And he has a compilation of, of curious accounts, basically, that could be interpreted as, you know, maybe the same type of phenomena.
0: Jacques Vallée, huh? Is he still alive? Yeah. Maybe yeah, I he should... lives in the Bay Area. Okay. I know that this is... As a physicist, you want to stay within what you know, but if you don't mind speculating, why do you think they're shutting down our nuclear devices? Do you think that that's just a side effect? It's inadvertent, like maybe when they accelerate, that happens for whatever reason, or do you think it's purposeful? Why do they selectively shut it down in this area and only at certain times?
1: That's a good question. I don't know how. I don't know the manner in which they were shut down. I mean, this stuff is still. I mean, I don't think. I don't think. The military has admitted that that's actually happened. You you have people who work at these sites who claim that it happened. Um, The most detail I've heard was from Robert Salas, and he said that, I believe it was him, and he said that it was a failure of the, um, basically a failure of of the navigation and guidance systems, and that then led to a shutdown. So that's curious, because now if you have the inertial, nav- you know, inertial navigation systems failing, you know, could that be due to how the craft operates? So maybe it's just a side side effect.
0: Hmm. hmm.
1: I mean, I, I mean, I, at this point, you know, this is extremely hypothetical. So I am just making up stories here. But I mean, if you have a craft that basically is somehow warping space-time or affecting space-time and you've got an inertial navigation system sitting nearby that could affect it. So and then if their systems are set up so that they shut down whenever one of these things goes haywire, then the UFO flying over it could be enough to trigger that to shut down. Is it on purpose? Is it an accident? I don't I mean these these things have to be studied and we have just gotten to the point where People are admitting that they're real. I mean, after after eighty years, I think that's a little. To me, I find that a little scary. I and mean, we've had this this going on for about eighty years, and it took us eighty years to decide that it's they're real. Um, but we still don't know what they are, or you know nor what they're doing here. Eighty so, years?
0: You're referring to the fifties, from the forties? Yeah, late forties. Yeah. There aren't any reports from the U.S. government of UFOs prior to the
1: forties. I don't know about from the U.S. government. There are reports of the UFOs prior to that, Um, easily into the 1800s, numerous ones, yeah, by ship captains and things like this. These things have been seen for a long time, which is another argument against them being American or Russian-Chinese drones. Um, They've been observed well before people could fly, so.
0: Mm -hmm. There's someone who came out recently, I believe they're Israeli, talking Mm -hmm. about... UFO. I don't know. I forgot the person's name. I don't know the story. Do you mind edifying me as well as the audience?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that was an interesting story. I don't remember his position and I don't remember his name, but he was in the... high up in the Israeli military. And he claimed Ham that... Ham
0: Ashed. Ham Ashed or Haim Ished.
1: Yeah. Is he the one who Israeli claimed... Israeli
0: director of the space program, it said.
1: Right. So is he the one that claimed that they were in contact with, with alien... Alien okay. I have a question or... here
0: for Avi Loeb from earlier today that talks yeah. about this. So the question was, okay, I would like to hear Avi Loeb's opinion on the claims of former Israeli director of the space program, Haim Ashed, brought forward. He must have heard about this, so-and-so. They went through the news briefly. Mm, was it a hoax? And I guess this person isn't recapitulating what Hen or Hem Ashed said, because he's assuming Avi Loeb already knew about it. Some...
1: Government officials, you know, have had some pretty um, pretty exciting or interesting claims, and it's, you know, these still aren't substantiated, so it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to know how much of it is a claim, how much of it is a mistake, how much of it is a problem with the individual. <laughs> you, you, You know, we still have all of those questions. When
0: I spoke to Jeremy Corbell, he seemed to think that the aliens were shutting down the nuclear arms as a flex of their sovereignty. And, well, what you're saying is it might be inadvertent. I'm also wondering, why is it that people can come out like David Fravor and so on, other people, like you mentioned, from the government, and not be sued by the government or shushed by the government or simply destroyed, killed? How are they allowed to speak about it? I know you don't particularly like Bob Lazar or believe Bob Lazar, but let's imagine Bob Lazar is correct. Let's just imagine how is he allowed? There are people like him, maybe not to the same degree. Right.
1: I don't, that's a good question. I don't know. Um. I don't know much about workings in the intelligence community, so I'm not sure how they would operate. They may have um, opted to eliminate individuals in the past. Um, I think, At this point, it would be rather, you know, it would be fishy and would probably draw more attention than anything. So I don't know if, I don't know. And, you know, if they, you know, if you have a lawsuit where you sue them for talking about this, well, then now you've basically admitted that it's true or some aspect of it's true. And so that would be a problem too. Something else that's puzzled me about aliens at all is that
0: our rate if i'm just going by our rate of technological improvement is drastic every decade and for sure every century so some people would critique every decade like peter thiel but at least every century that's for sure and when you take a look at let's imagine these aliens are going back to their planet that takes a couple years from some it'll other take, time well, frame it'll take it'll it may yeah, take them a day proper or so. time they can do it right. a few,
1: depending on their accelerations right. it could be a few days to a few months um for for us it could take it for us it could take a thousand years or a hundred couple hundred years so yeah
0: so let's just imagine they're going back to their little alien civilization in some other planet okay <laughs> then i would imagine that that planet has increased its age by maybe a few decades then I would imagine that when they come back, they should be far more technologically advanced each. So every decade for us, when they're going and coming back, presuming they're going and coming back, I don't see why it should look the same at all, because I would imagine that if it was us, we would look vastly different every century or so, especially century from now. Maybe our planes look like triangles. Maybe a century f- from maybe 200 years from now, our planes would look like dust. And then maybe farther, it'll look like a planet and so on. You understand the idea. Yeah, yeah. So why do you think it is that there's somewhat of a constancy <clears> of the reports in terms of how they look, a visual inspection, maybe even their speed of aliens, given that we are so quick with our technological advancement, and they're presumably far more advanced than us, which means their trajectory of let's say Moore's law or whatever it is that they follow should be they should be farther along in the exponential curve.
1: No, that's an excellent that's an excellent question, and i <clears throat> I have a hypothesis that could answer that in a. and i came up with this in response to the general reaction of so 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 it's we 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 know well that if you can get a craft up to um relativistic speeds if you could engineer something like this so Mm -hmm. yes huge engineering feat. whatever we don't even know how you'd pull it off whatever yeah but if you could then time dilation works in your favor. It works in the favor of the traveler, right? So, so you could you could conceivably leave your home world. Let's say you come from a thousand light years away. You leave your home world, and you travel to Earth, and you can travel close to the speed of light. So you can get here in a few weeks. So it's a few week trip to Earth. That's nice for you. Um, it will be it'll take about a thousand years. If if that planet's a thousand light years away from Earth, it'll take a thousand years in the galaxy frame. So a thousand years will pass on Earth and a thousand years will pass at home. And then now they hang out here, they go into, you know, they land in a meadow and and, and chose that on purpose um, and take some biological samples and then they take off and head home now <clears throat> on the way home it's another thousand light years so for us in the galaxy's frame it's going to take another thousand years for them to get home um maybe a couple of weeks for them again so for them what was a you know a few month trip um has turned into a 2000 year trip back at home and the argument you know while while relativity would work in favor of the traveler the question is who would do that because what society would ever conceive of a mission that would take two thousand years because the people who designed the mission are never going to see the results of it, and the travelers are going to come back to a culture that's totally different than the culture they left because of the 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 um reasons that you're stating so So why would anyone do this well the The supposition is that they are going to go home um and that they live on a planet and i think that's you know that that's what we have implicitly assumed there what we've neglected to remember is that even on earth there exist nomadic tribes and there still exist nomadic tribes so you could pull this off if you were a nomadic society not a planet bound society so imagine you know, you and me, we want to go space traveling, but we don't want to be 10, you know, a thousand years apart. Um, I'll head off to um, to the star Rigel or something, 900 light years away. You pick another place to go about about as distant. And we plan to meet back up here at, you know, a certain time in the future. So we can plan our trip accordingly so that we come back here at the same time And it may be 2,000 years in Earth's future, but, you know, we don't care. We can still meet up and compare notes, and then we can travel off again. So you can imagine that you could have a whole breakaway civilization like this, where it literally is a civilization of travelers. And that's what they do. They travel, and they travel, and they explore. And they periodically meet up. They have meet-up points and meet-up times that are all prearranged, or they have some algorithm for this. And um, they can then exchange goods. They can exchange information and travel again. And what they're basically doing is they're using relativity in their favor, using time dilation in their favor. And they're basically, but but they're not just space traveling. They're also time traveling into the future, right? So they're they're traveling through space, interstellar space, but they're also traveling through time by racing forward into the future with respect to the rest of the galaxy.
0: So all of them and their friends are also traveling around to meet up at the same two thousand year future relative to the galaxy.
1: Yeah, they might not ha- they might not have a single meetup place. They might have multiple meetup places and just randomly meet up. But yeah, you could do it various ways. And if that was the situation, then you could take advantage of relativity to travel, you know, galactic distances. And um. And the advantage I mean, it would be very interesting because you could, um, so imagine that you accelerate, you know, at a thousand, if you could accelerate at a thousand G, like, you know, similar to some of these objects we've observed, you could accelerate at a thousand G halfway, decelerate at a thousand G the other half. You can get from one side of the galaxy to the other in just a couple weeks, a couple months. Um, so, so let's say it takes you three months to get from one side of the galaxy to the other, and then you can come back. And when you come back, it's taking you a six month trip, but you know, in the galaxy's frame, it's going to be about a hundred thousand years later. So you get to travel through time. And, and so now your perspective of the universe is very different. Um, first, and mm-hmm. first, when people look at you, they're going to see the same ships you're, you're traveling in the same craft and why do these craft not evolve? because it's actually the same one <laughs> It could actually be the same craft so the same craft that was observed in Roman times could literally be the same object with the same you know beings in it you know 2,000 years later. they could literally be the same object fascinating
0: fascinating fascinating So let's imagine this is a 10-day journey for them. There's and for them, it's just for frame.
1: them. It's a couple of days. Yeah. So they would be so they might be very now for them. We are ephemeral. Right. And um, because they're when they come back, you and I are going to be gone. So there's no point in making friends. There's no point in landing on the White House lawn and introducing yourself to the president, because the next time they come back, the United States isn't even going to be here. It'll be something else. Another culture. Mm. So, there's no point in getting to know the locals. So, it could explain why they, you know, and, and if they study, you could then actually study a civilization. So, their concept of a civilization and how you study civilizations would be very different. You can actually watch civilizations evolve. Right, right. We're kind of like fruit flies to them, right? <laughs> so, they could. Uh-huh. St-
0: That's right. That's it's fascinating, fascinating. So it would be like, imagine for the people listening, to get some, to get another analogy for me as well, is I'm pressing play on a movie, and then I'm speeding up the movie. You know you can do that on Google. You can speed up by 2x. But imagine right. you can speed up by 300x, or 1,000, or whatever it may be, a millionx. And then every once in a while, you come into the room. You're like, oh, that's an interesting part of the movie. Then you walk out of the room. Then you come back. Okay, so for you, it's just a couple days. And you have a few of your friends who are doing something similar. So... From the movie's perspective, if they were to look out, they would see oh, there's someone who has similar characteristics as the person before. Hmm <laughs> hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. Why do you think it is that aliens look somewhat like us? At least one at least from the reports. And again Right, right. And again, we're taking some of these reports to be serious because just like we're taking some of the reports of the crap to be serious, it seems like it's not that wild they're not octopus they're people with two eyes
1: four limbs so that's a good question um i don't have a good answer for that i would imagine that a possi- if if that's really the case then i imagine that the it could very well be a, a situation of convergent evolution right um and we we don't really understand yet how you know, different environmental factors affect evolution, but, you know, we can look at Earth's history and get some ideas. So, uh, fish shapes, right? Fish shapes, the fish shape works great in water, right? Nice and streamlined if you're shaped like a fish. And there've been other things with fish shapes, right? The same shapes you've had, um, you have fish that are fish shaped, you have reptiles that are fish shaped, the ichthyosaurs, right? And you have, um, Mammals that are fish-shaped, whales and dolphins. So that same shape evolved multiple times because it's an efficient shape. Um, so having two free hands is very useful to building spaceships. So maybe if you look like an optic octopus and you're very brilliant, you don't, you know, or if you're a dolphin, dolphins don't have thumbs. <laughs> Go back to an Onion article <laughs> where... So dolphins don't have thumbs, so they're not going to build spaceships. It doesn't matter how smart they are. That's not going to happen. And so it really could be something like that.
0: Another, just to go off on a speculative jump, I've heard this said by some of the people who have encountered aliens or supposedly encountered aliens, that we're an experiment. So one is that, okay, this is just what happens with convergent evolution. But another is that they somehow caused us and then that's why there's a correlation. And that one is fascinating because I remember hearing someone say, it might have been Lazar, it might have been someone else say that, I don't think it was Lazar, someone say that the aliens referred to us, you know, this is obviously presuming that we could speak to them or that they, it's all true. The aliens refer to us as carriers or of vessels of something. Of what? Now that's scary. Let's just imagine it's true. Of what? Of consciousness? Of a soul? Of biological material? of what Hmm. yeah some
1: of these yeah some of these stories are very strange and it's really hard to know what to make of them um it's it's far easier to just say it's got to be nonsense right (laughs) and we've but we've been down that road several times now well you you just gave me such an you just
0: i don't know was this something you've been working on for a little while that little theory where they come in and out and
1: Yeah, for for about a year, yeah, about, no, I came up with it about two years ago, and I presented that idea at the, one of the conferences with the Society for um, Scientific uh, Coalition for UAP Studies. So I presented it to them. I have a video of that talk that I can give you the link to. Please write that down if you don't mind, because even if I don't watch
0: it, which I hopefully do, I hopefully get the time to watch it. I'll still include it in the description so other people can watch it.
1: Sure. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've started writing that up as a paper, but I haven't finished that yet.
0: Right. There are two facts about aliens that always troubled me about them. So one is that they look too much like us. It was too human, in other words. But we just found a way to get around that one conversion to two they caused us in some way. And then number two is that the rate of technological progress should be should be so far, so quick, that they would be unrecognizable. There would be no through line to even call them aliens across the decades, especially across the centuries. But you've managed to find a way around that as well. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So now what I'm wondering... I'm sorry to get off on this idea shooting back and forth. but No, these what are fun is... things to think about. <laughs> great, great, great. Now what I'm wondering is, imagine if I have a, let's just say a fish tank, for lack of a better word. And that fish tank, I can turn up the rate at which time passes on it. So again, this is like that movie analogy. It's going at a, a trillion times hour speed. Okay, So I'm turning it up. What I want to do is I want to test out. Imagine I'm just testing out. How is life going to work in this scenario? So I can start it. Maybe it's even, there's a word for this, panspermia? Yeah. Right. Okay. So I test out what is this going to look like? Then I come back and I look, what is, hmm, I wonder if that's what's going on. I wonder if we are
1: just some experiment for them. The whole alien abduction phenomenon is very strange. There's a lot of strange aspects to it. And one thing that bothers me is that the if the number of people who claim to be abducted are if that's actually correct if they actually have been then then the question is why and what are they doing to them because you don't need to you don't need to abduct a million people to do a scientific experiment on on the human body right um you only need a, maybe a thousand or so so Way too many people are getting abducted. So the question is what is actually happening? Would be the next question I'd have if the if the abductions are real, of course. Right, right.
0: Have you found any credible evidence to the alien abductions and have you found any material that's foreign embedded within some people?
1: I know that some people claim. No, I know that there are is a group at least one group that is studying alien abductions in a more detailed way, but that's all that I know about.
0: Okay. Let's talk about Bob Lazar. Why are you suspicious of Bob Lazar? Not that I'm not suspicious or suspicious. I'm just curious because someone who studies aliens to me, they, they just want, they just accept what Bob says, especially because it validates what they've been thinking. Right.
1: I'm suspicious because he has, supposedly has a background in physics. He claims to have a, have a master's degree in physics. And when he describes, he he's careful about describing the physics with enough detail to be tantalizing, but not enough detail for you to be able to tell whether it's correct or not. Can and that think, not
0: simply be a function of ignorance? So for example, he just doesn't know beyond that point because it's not clear how the craft work.
1: That could be that could be part of it. He just might not know. Um Yeah, no, I mean that could be part of it. I just I just get the impression that that he's walking that he's I get the impression he's purposefully walking that line between you know, of, of giving enough information to be tantalizing and sound, sounding, um, you know, realistic without giving you enough information to be able to test it.
0: Have you watched any of his technical talks? I only know of one. Maybe there are more. I don't know if I sent it to you. There's one no, from I the
1: don't, 80s. I don't know. I would like to see it, I guess. I'd like to watch it.
0: I should have sent that to you because he talks about how he thinks the craft work and there are diagrams and then he also refers to element 115 i'm sure you've heard that over and over right which is interesting because he associates the strong force as gravity number two or gravity number one which is to me one of the reasons i got interested in this kevin is because i'm interested in the fundamental laws of the universe and so how do you unify qft with gr okay now if you're claiming that the strong force has something to do with gravity that to me is extremely interesting Right. Yeah. Have you heard him talk about the strong force in that manner? And then what's no, right? I've or I've heard, about heard it?
1: that he said that, but that's all that I I know about it. I would, yeah. So I'd like to watch that talk actually. That would be fun. Me and you have to have another conversation after you watch. <laughs> all that. right. If you don't mind, certainly. No, be I would love to.
0: Okay, you said I've been in contact with Eric Bard, who is currently a PI
1: at Skinwalker Ranch. PI meaning private investigator. Uh no principal investigator. Like he's the principal scientist. He is working for um Brandon Fugel, who owns the ranch. And um and they're performing their own studies, so so I don't really get a lot of information from him about, you know, events or details. So um but we have talked about, you know, possibly you know, sharing information at some point.
0: He's contacting you because you're one of the few that are actually taking this seriously, or you contacted him, or what?
1: I contacted him initially because I was... I was working, and I'm still working, on trying to get satellite imagery of UFOs or UAPs. And since they had had sightings on the ranch, um, and they know the place and the time, they might those would be good candidates to get... Um, archived satellite imagery. So you could get get third party confirmation that, you know, from space that yeah, there's a there's a disk there (laughs) hovering over the ground.
0: Why can't you do that with any of the other reports? You you can obviously some of them are older, but what about NIMS? Yeah,
1: well you should you should be able to and I've been working in that direction. So the difficulties I've had mainly have to do with um my contacts at the satellite companies, you know, they're usually doing this as a favor, um pulling images, and and once you know we get to the point where they realize that I'm looking for UFO images, then I think it's like, well, you know, their opinion becomes more like, well, I have real work to do, so well, that's going to have to sit up, go to the back burner. It's unfortunate because I think it's a. You know, potentially you have a big discovery and this third party data would be really useful. And um, so I am I, still hopeful that we can do something like this.
0: There are satellites orbiting the Earth that are taking pictures of virtually every part of the Earth and they're third party that doesn't violate any laws by the government.
1: No, I don't I, I don't know what the laws are, but um but I know that they, that there are several companies that have global coverage um and very you know in relatively short time intervals. So
0: That's interesting. I didn't know about that. As for spacecraft, so this is we're nearing the end of our spacecraft question, then we'll get to the physics. Okay. Great. So as for the UFO spacecraft, do you imagine that they're taking advantage of some new physics? And when I say new physics, what I mean is physics that we don't understand. So maybe like Lazar is correct with the strong force being a gravitational one or maybe there's a fifth force or maybe they're utilizing your partially ordered set manner of constructing space time from the ground up. Or do you think it's just technological sophistication in the same way that a cell phone if the cell phone isn't using any new physics quote-unquote since the 1950s we pretty much could understand how this operated it's just the technical sophistication do you imagine it's technical sophistication or the utilization of new physics
1: it's a good question i suspect that there is some new physics and the reason i think that is because we don't see these things appear to be violating conservation of momentum so when the object takes off you know, at this huge acceleration, there ought to be something moving the other way, right? Um, and that we don't observe that. So you have that problem. The fact that they move through air almost effortlessly with no sonic booms um, is a problem. The, uh, yeah, so for instance, that the Tic Tac object that was observed on radar to drop from 28,000 feet to sea level in point seven eight seconds, at the midpoint, it had to be going about thirty five thousand miles an hour. That's Mach sixty, <laughs> right? That's crazy, and that and that's as fast as the New Horizons probe that went to Pluto. So that little that little tic tac object basically, as it dropped to sea level, accelerated to the speed of the New Horizons probe within point um, four seconds, which is really remarkable. Um, and so it did that without a sonic boom and, um, and it's not clear how that's possible. So it really does look like there's some new physics involved. Um, and then for people who then question the, you know, there's uh, the question always often comes up, why do you assume that these are, these are spacecraft? And the answer is really simple because they travel at the speeds of spacecraft. (laughs) That's, they travel at those speeds, and they travel with accelerations that could would not only make them viable interstellar craft, but it would make them excellent interstellar craft. So,
0: do you believe that they have some base on Earth? That's actually where I thought you were going with your little theory before, when we were talking about why is oh, it that the oh the traveling and the advanced. yeah yeah yeah. I thought that you were going to say that. Well, perhaps they're not going home. Perhaps they're not leaving earth. I thought you were going there, but do you believe that they have some space, sorry, some base on earth, maybe under the water, maybe on the other side of the moon? As some people I think remind.
1: there's been, there's been a lot of suspicion that, you know, a lot of talk that there could be underwater bases. Um, You know, 75% of the earth's surface is water. And we really have very little access to it. So if you are going to hide out somewhere, that's perfect. Um, and then, to be honest, if you're, if you're aquatic in the first place, let's say that you come from an aquatic environment, aquatic environments on planets are going to be much better to live in than atmospheric environments. <clears throat> Atmospheres have a low heat capacity, so the temperature varies a lot throughout the day even, right? You get huge temperature variations, um, And then going from planet to planet, you have huge temperature variations in the atmosphere. You know, go to Mars and you're looking at 100 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. You go to Venus and you're looking at 800 degrees Fahrenheit. It's dramatic. And the air pressure is dramatically different, you know, from planet to planet. So here we have one atmosphere of air pressure. You go to Mars, it's one one hundredth. And you go to Venus, it's a hundred times, you know, so you've got four orders of magnitude of variation of air pressure. And and um and then of course air doesn't do much for protecting you from cosmic rays and meteorites right so there's all sorts of problems with living on a surface protected only by an atmosphere but if you live in an ocean you know going to another planet with an ocean is actually a pretty good thing if you if you know it's a water ocean then a water ocean on another planet is going to be between the temperatures of you know, 32 degrees Fahrenheit and, you know, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. So so the temperatures aren't going to change dramatically from ocean to ocean, going from one planet to another. And you can... And because water's not compressible, the, the pressures aren't going to change that dramatically either. Um, the pressures are going to be a function of gravity. But, you know, a very deep ocean on Europa, the pressure you know, the pressure halfway down, maybe 30 miles down into Europa's ocean is going to be similar to the pressure at the bottom of our oceans, only five miles down. So so you can actually find a nice place to, to hide out, hang out if that's your, the pressure you're used to. You know, the only different, the main differences are going to be um, be chemicals dissolved in the ocean. So are there some chemicals that are poisonous to you in that ocean Or biologics, you know, if there's, you know, bacteria and things like this, that could be problematic, too. But otherwise, going from one ocean to another is almost going to be, for the most part, you know, for survival purposes, will be very similar.
0: Do you think that if we were to pass over an alien civilization, presuming they're underwater, and we were able to see them, that they would sense us and then relocate quickly? Or they would just allow
1: us to observe them? Just speculate, oh, I don't know. that's a good question. um yeah, it's hard to speculate what somebody else would do i'm I'm not even sure what humans would do in that case, so right,
0: do you think that they're building a base, or do you think that they're somewhat they're somehow living in their craft underground because there's not much room in those crafts, and at
1: least I don't imagine there to be I don't know a three hundred foot disk would be pretty good it depends how many how many people you have in there
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's fascinating this whole topic there's so many other questions I had for you but I just feel like exploring this and exploring this and just so you know I'm not someone who's into conspiracy theories or strange phenomenon I'm much like yourself I'm pretty sure this just like you but this is absolutely fascinating and it's it's even frightening because what the heck are we like I, and now i'm wondering how much of this is actually just an experiment by them because well that to me makes the most sense as to why they i don't think convergent evolution would produce intelligent creatures that look like us each time i don't think so it could be the case but i don't buy it only because we have one data point and maybe aliens are two data points Mm, 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 mm. strange
1: yeah well the problem is that the thing the thing that i wonder about is if they're if they're dna based right if they have the same kind of biochemistry that we do then then it's hard to imagine that we're hear that
0: sound Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories.
1: We're not related in some way, right? So are they from you know so then you start wondering about all the possible are they from here <laughs> which would be very surprising um are they from here did we really miss something big um did they come from here originally and go somewhere else and are coming back did they are they from another another system where ooh, there was some kind of panspermia between you know that led to you know biology spreading from one system to another so that were of the same you know, so that we're somehow biologically related to one another. Otherwise, I'd imagine it would be very much, you know, the situation you would expect would be very much more like what um, Stuart Kaufman from the Santa Fe Institute would have described where you have the biology is probably very different and you run the risk of, you know, you don't want to touch them because you're going to you know, your biology isn't compatible, so there's going to be all sorts of horrible chemical reactions. Um, so we don't want to touch them, yeah. Well, you don't want to come in contact with their organic molecules because you don't know what kind of reactions you'd have. Um, so you because well, so, so in Stuart Kaufman's talked about autocatalytic sets where you get sets of organic molecules that autocatalyze. Right. And so our biology is basically one whole system of of these types of chemicals. So we're all compatible with each other. But if you get another organic molecule in that's foreign, you know, that's going to interact with different ways and create all sorts of new types of molecules. So.
0: I haven't heard of that before. Yeah. That is Stuart Kaufman. Stuart Kaufman. Yeah. Autocatalytic sets or autocatalytic molecules or what?
1: Autocatalytic sets, I think it was, and he—I think it was his book "At Home in the Universe." I believe it is.
0: Hmm, hmm, hmm.
1: But you know, the implications from that is if there were aliens who were truly alien, the you, and they were, but they were, you know, made of, you know, they're carbon-based. Then the chance that the molecules are similar is, you know, are is going to be—it's going to be problematic. Why do you think they mutilate cattle? That's a good question. I don't know. I <laughs> I don't understand. I don't know if they do. I mean, we the real. I mean, the real answer to a lot of these is we don't know anything yet about these things. So, and we don't know if these things are all related.
0: Okay, sorry. What
1: could be a reason they
0: mutilate cattle? Let's say it like that.
1: Yeah. Are, are they doing experiments? Are they you know? Are they collecting data? I don't. That's a good Collect question. Why cattle? I don't know.
0: Well cattle are the most plentiful of all the animals, actually, by weight at least.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I had a I had a thought I had a an idea, and I'll share the idea with you. So this is, you know, not even at the level of a hypothesis, right? This is just a thought. So Ray Stanford, who has studied UFOs in the 70s. He refers to a sense of, he calls it euphoria, spelled U-F-O-R-I-A, euphoria. Okay. And he says that when you are near one of these craft, you have a feeling of euphoria. And um, he's recorded electromagnetic um, variations in the electromagnetic field from these things, And those variations happen around 12 Hertz. So that's interesting because 12 Hertz is close to the alpha rhythm frequencies that you get in the visual cortex when you close your eyes. Okay, wait, sorry. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this.
0: So who's this person who's saying this? Ray Stanford. Okay, so Ray Stanford is saying that there's a phenomenon called euphoria. Yeah. Okay, and he's defining this phenomenon right now. He's not referring to something else. He's def-
1: yeah, the phenomenon is the feeling that you get, the sense of euphoria, actually. Um, spelled the so it's related way. to euphoria? It's yeah. related to happiness? Yeah. Because yeah.
0: I know that some people feel abject terror.
1: Yeah, oh, certainly, yeah. But 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 he says that when the craft are just near, even if you're not aware of them, you'll get that sense of euphoria. And he's he claims to use this to go you know, he'll have that feeling and then go outside and, oh, yeah, there it is. There's one um, and takes photos. And so he's done that in the past, and that's what he claims. So I, so I was curious about this because he had also measured uh, variations in the electric field that are around on the order of 12 hertz, which is close to our alpha. Variations where? Where they're reported? Yeah. So when you when he is taking photos of a UFO, he'll have he has equipment that measures, you know, EM, EM fields. So he'll measure the electric and magnetic field and That's you get same. variations, That's oscillations of about 12 hertz are prominent uh-huh. sometimes. So the so that kind of caught my attention because and this is where the thought comes in. Right. This is his yeah. claim. You know, I have not seen this myself. I've not measured it and so i i can't you know testify to the to how true it is but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my thought what struck me was that 12 hertz is close to your alpha rhythm and and um and so if you have strong electric and magne- oscillating electric and magnetic fields near these things you're going to induce currents into the brain and if these currents are at 12 hertz, they could entrain the alpha rhythm. You can actually entrain alpha, alpha rhythms, so um, so you could entrain, entrain an alpha rhythm, which would which could very well make you feel, you know, calm or restful or sleepy or you know euphoric or something like that. Now, of course, this could be overridden by the terror of seeing you know a you know this craft and you know aliens coming out of it or whatever might happen, but but it that was my that was my thought well maybe maybe that's where the euphoria comes from it's comes from these oscillations in the electric field and then it made me think that um and i had this thought watching the video uh, from skinwalker ranch of the disc in the sky with the cow dying right the cow was dying um, while the disc was hovering over it um where was this from this was a, a taken at Skinwalker Ranch and it was in their 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 T V series, their documentary series. Right. What's the host name? De- Travis. Travis Taylor. Travis Taylor, yep. Yeah. Is that the series you're referring to? That's yeah, the one. Yeah. I would like to talk to Travis. Have you ever spoken to him? Yeah, I have. I've met him. He's an interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. So so in that in that case you had you had the you had the, the disc is hovering oh, some distance above the cow. The cow actually died there. And and it was acting funny beforehand, and it made me think. Well, the cow's brains are different sizes, and I don't know what frequency their alpha rhythm is at. So I thought, what if what if these craft are inducing currents into the cow's brain, and then it makes them panic or something instead of mm-hmm. giving them the sense of euphoria? Ah, 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 ah! That's fascinating. And so maybe these maybe I they're like that. so. What if what if they're killing the cows by accident? So here's just a thought. They're killing the cows by accident, right? And then they're trying to figure out why the cows are dying whenever they fly near them, right? So then they go down and they did take some samples and collect some data to figure out why the cows are dying. Um, Maybe that, (laughs) it's it's a thought, that's all. Yeah. It's a fun thought. It's fun to think of things. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, yes. There does
0: seem to be an association with radiation, especially magnetic, sorry, electromagnetic radiation and these craft from that TV series, I recall them saying that all of the cow at Kyle's skinwalker were placed into one room the size of this condo, and it was magnetized. Do you remember that? That
1: all the oh, cows yeah. were placed I, in there, I've and it heard was that. Yeah. locked. Yeah, there was something bizarre. Yeah, there was well, there were several bizarre stories <laughs> having to do with the cattle. Now, what the heck can explain that? I don't, I don't know what can explain half of what I've heard happens that's at Skinwalker <laughs> Ranch. So that's how... That is a okay. Let's talk about Skinwalker for that's a That's a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> let's open
0: this kettle of fish. With Skinwalker, there seems to be reports of ghosts, Bigfoot, and so like every phenomenon. That's pretty paranormal. much
1: everything you've ever heard of. It happens there, which is very, very bizarre. What's the
0: relationship? What could be? How about that? What could be the relationship between UFOs and the rest of other paranormal activity? Why? So here's one. Here's one simple answer. That when the aliens are nearby, in the same way that they induce a a different conscious state, then in the same way that low-frequency sounds, I'm sure you've heard heard of this, low-frequency sounds can produce reports of ghost sightings. Maybe there's something similar happening. But then that wouldn't explain any actual footage like or intersubjective right. agreement as to, oh, I saw an animal that looked like this over there. I wouldn't right. imagine that it would just produce strange phenomena and each person would have a different. yeah inter-
1: intersubjective agreement is a good term. I've often heard, yeah, I wouldn't explain that. you know I've heard professionals claim <clears throat> oh, it's a mass hallucination. And then I have to remind them, you know, that's not a thing either, right? <laughs> that's not a real phenomenon either. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know what could explain this.
0: Let's get to some physics. Man, I want to stay on this topic so bad, but let's get to some physics. Sure. We'll transition by talking about consciousness. Usually I save that for the end. But do you have any ideas as to how consciousness arises? Is it emergent? And...
1: Is there a connection between aliens and consciousness? <clears throat> I would have no idea what that connection is. Some people seem to make a connection, but I don't have an idea I don't have any ideas of where that connection is. I I have very boring thoughts about consciousness compared to other people, I think. I don't I don't think of it as being as dramatic as many seem to think. The I mean, what do, what, do, and maybe we're thinking about different things. So, when I think of being conscious, you know, I'm conscious of my surroundings. I'm conscious of my state, um, and that that to me doesn't seem to be much of a miracle. I'm not sure what what's so difficult about that, um, and so it very possible that other people when they talk about consciousness and are interested in it, I think they're interested in some other aspect that I'm not thinking about. Okay. I like
0: this. This was from, this is a quote from one of your papers. My belief is that the most foundational research either assumes too much or is too focused on specific subfields of physics. For example, I do not believe that one can effectively study the foundations of quantum mechanics and ignore probability theory, gravity, electromagnetism, and other related phenomenon. The universe is a package, a package deal, and to understand it requires an understanding of that package as a whole. Certainly, progress is made in relatively small steps, but if one is to seriously think about solving this puzzle, one has to keep in mind the whole picture while one is trying to place a particular piece. Mm -hmm. Now, I had a sub-question to that. Prior to that, you talked about machine learning. So first of all, I share that view. Uh, That's how I like that. That's one of the reasons I took that quote out. I believe you just mentioned machine learning. And what I'm wondering is like, what the heck does machine learning have to do with fundamental physics? Unless you're Stephen Wolfram and you think computation is at the core of it all. What the heck does machine learning have to do at all? Except with some problem solving techniques. But I know, well... So what does machine learning have to do with fundamental physics?
1: So what did I, I'm not sure what I said about machine learning before
0: that. Um, I think you talked about, maybe it was on your website, and I'm just conflating quite a bit of information. You talked about that one of your advantages is that you came from machine learning, and you can apply that to physics. Now, I imagine what you were referring to was fundamental physics, at least in these papers. I'm not sure if you were. Now, were you? Is there an application of machine learning? Oh, no, no, I don't think I
1: was... When I said that, I don't think I was referring to the foundational physics. I think I was referring to some of the other work I do with exoplanet characterization and some of the astrophysics work I've done.
0: Yes, okay. You worked with someone, by the way, from U of T, my hometown, my Bailiwick. U of T for spectral inference... From a multiplexing Fourier transform oh, spectrometer.
1: Arsene, yes, Arsene Hodgian. <laughs> yep.
0: Okay, why don't you explain each of those terms? Spectral inference from a multiplexing Fourier transform spectrometer. So let's. Spectral inference. What is that referring to? What does right. that
1: mean? So the idea is that we are inferring the spectrum from data recorded from the interferometer. Basically, the, the device works by taking in... We were looking at stars. And so we were taking taking light in, um, beam splitter, split it up, and then you have a delay line that you can vary the length. And then you recombine them and you get an interference pattern. And so, so you either have mm, constructive mm-hmm. interference or deconstructive interference. And depending on the... And it depends on how much you have, it depends on how much of each frequency or wavelength you have in the original light beam. So as you vary this delay length, um, the side length of this interferometer, you'll you'll get interference fringes. So these mm-hmm. um, so by doing that, you can then look at that interference pattern and then infer what um, spectrum had to be present that, to give you that interference pattern.
0: I see, I see. Now, interferometers, is that what LIGO uses to detect gravitational waves? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Okay, okay. Now multiplexing Fourier transform. So, Fourier transform should be familiar, but what's a multiplexing Fourier transform?
1: Oh, let me try to remember what the, what that referred to. You might have used that adjective just to describe that we can look at multiple wavelengths at once. Can you not do that with a traditional? Usually, usually with an interferometer you're using, like with LIGO, you'll take a laser beam at a given wavelength, and then you are look, waiting for an interference pattern. And as a gravitational wave comes by, that actually stretches your, your delay lines. Right. And that's right. what you detect. So in this case, you're not, yeah, you're just taking light in. So it's multiple frequencies. Spectrometer. Now, what is that? So a spectrometer is used to measure the spectrum of the light. So you can determine what wavelengths are present in that beam of light.
0: I'm mispronouncing these words, but hopefully you can understand what I'm trying to say. So what's the relationship between the spectrometer and the interferometer?
1: Ah, well, there usually is no relationship. In this device, we use the interferometer to figure out what the spectrum is. So the whole device is then called a spectrometer. So we're using an interferometer to determine what wavelengths are present. I see. And I see. So the, re- the end, end result is that we obtain a spectrum of the incoming light.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Earlier in your career, you used to work on auditory, neural auditory. Yeah, I
1: did work in neuroscience. That's right.
0: Right. Okay. So you said, in particular, I was interested in the transition that happens when one listens to clicks and then increases it to, let's say, 40 hertz. So that's mm-hmm. 40 times a second. And then perceptually it goes from to just a tone. And then you had expected there to be doubling effects due to neural refractory periods. Now what I'm wondering is why would you expect? Okay. So what do you expect to double the frequency or the period? I
1: expected there to be period doubling. So I was looking for nonlinear effects in the auditory system. And I expected that. You'd have something like period doubling bifurcations going on, like you see in nonlinear dynamics. So basically, the idea is that the neurons have a particular firing rate, and they have a refractory period during you know after they fire, they have a refractory period over which they can't fire again because they've got to build up the chemical levels again, right? Um, and so now, if you so now if you stimulate a neuron, it'll fire but if you stimulate it too fast, then you're going to start missing beats because it'll fire and then you'll have it be in refractory mode when you trigger it again. So it won't won't fire on that one. But then the second one, it'll fire again, but the next one it won't because it's still refractory. So you get a period doubling and that's what I expected to see in the auditory system. And I thought that that might be responsible for the perception of tones instead of um, individual clicks. And what are the results? That wasn't
0: what was responsible for. Was negative.
1: For it? No, I did not see that happen at all. So, in that, in, it was interesting. Well, as a PhD student, it's disappointing because it's a negative result, right? And so, mm-hmm. so my thesis had to do with a negative result, and um, and I did other things like map out locations of active areas in the brain using fun- using MRI. So, um. Along with, the, along with the magnetoencephalography, which is what I was recording. The, um, now, it was interesting because it was a few years later, I was reading a paper about schizophrenics, and it turned out the authors discovered that phenomena in schizophrenics. Now, they didn't know about nonlinear dynamics, so they didn't call it the same thing, but from the period doubler. There, The period doubling. So looking Mm. at their data, it was clear that it was a period doubling effect. So they found it in schizophrenics, but I didn't find it in normal people. So that was Mm. kind of interesting.
0: Can that be used to potentially diagnose schizophrenia or preconditions of schizophrenia?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I didn't really pursue it. So I didn't, I didn't, I don't know.
0: Orc OR, I'm sure you heard about orchestrated objective reduction from Penrose. With regard Um, to consciousness, quantum gravity. Oh, okay, okay. Well, anyway, he has an interesting theory as to why the wave function collapses. And it's because right when it reaches a super... Like, the question is, how does gravity come in? Because are you in both... Is space-time in a superposition? He would say, yes, space-time is until it reaches a critical time interval. A critical separation. At which point, it then chooses when it collapses. And that's a moment of proto-consciousness. It's actually a fascinatingly creative theory (laughs) i'm so surprised that someone penrose a mainstream somewhat mainstream physicist would come up with this because it's so bizarre anyway when you were referring to the perception of tones i was wondering hmm do you have a theory as to why we perceive it all of a sudden to be uniform and continuous and i was wondering if that was related to orchestrated objective reduction but anyway, did you manage to find out why the tone became a tone and not a series of clicks?
1: No, not really. So I don't... And I and I haven't done that work since that time, so I don't know much about that now, if anything's been discovered since. Okay. All right. All right.
0: Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your position at NASA Ames Research Center?
1: At NASA, yes. So I was a... <clears throat> I was a research scientist at NASA Ames in the Intelligent Systems Division. And so there what I did is I worked on mostly on astrophysics problems and designed machine learning algorithms to analyze data. So we worked on, for instance, one of the main projects I worked on was to work to create three-dimensional models of planetary nebulae so planetary nebulae are clouds of gas that surround old stars so these are stars that have collapsed and become a white dwarf so they kind of puff off their outer atmospheres um and form a nebula and we had obtained with with our sen hajian so the same person at um u of t that you mentioned earlier with the Fourier transform spectrometer so this was our project originally and he had um he had collected data with the Hubble Space Telescope of, of Planetary Nebula, and he had some imagery that were about five years apart, so you could actually see the change in size, uh, the ang- change in angular size of the object. We also had um, Doppler shift information by looking at the the um, the... The frequencies of light coming off the nebula, part of the nebula is coming towards you, part's going away, so you get a splitting in the Doppler lines. So we knew what the radial velocity was, and we knew the tangential um, angular size change. And so we wanted to create a 3D model so that we could relate the two and figure out what the velocity is in the tangential direction uh because once you know the angular size change and the velocity in that direction then you can get the distance to the nebula and there aren't very many good distance markers in the within you know the galactic range so so you know if things are within you know a thousand parsecs or so you can get some idea of how far away it is and of course if you look at other galaxies and you see the redshift from hubble expansion that you can get distances there, but distances within the galaxy are very poorly constrained. So we were trying to um, obtain three D models of planetary nebulae for distance markers. Why
0: why is it that the distances within the galaxies are troublesome? You can't figure them out, or not you, but one cannot.
1: Yeah, out well, distances? it's difficult. They're too. You're too. We're talking about distances where you're too far away to use parallax. So you can't use parallax anymore from the Earth. You know, the Earth is orbiting the sun. So you are you get a parallax shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're too far away for that. And um, you don't accurately know, you know, to get just dist- There's a few ways to get distances, right? So Cepheid variables are one. You have variable stars and you know how they're varying in intensity. And so... Because you know the varying intensity, you can then figure out how far away they are by looking at how much light you receive ah, um, so that uh-huh. so that's one way to get distances. but other stars you can't exactly know what their luminosity is, so you know you have, you have some idea, but you have a lot of uncertainty there, and so you can't get a good you know uh, a reliable distance for for most objects I see I see I see you know a
0: question that I asked Avi Loeb. I don't think you gave me a, a, a sufficient answer, and you could help me out. It's that when I'm when studying general relativity, just speaking about manifolds in general, and then the velocity at two different points on a manifold, you can't actually compare velocity at two different points. You can compare them when they're together. It's ill-defined right. to compare two different points on a manifold. Yeah, you have and to then,
1: you have to parallel transport one vector right. to another and then compare.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So which implies a connection now that's given by einstein's equations but but what i'm wondering is, is when we're saying that a galaxy is moving at a certain distance away from us so we're utilizing that connection to parallel transport it to be able to say that it's moving at a certain speed because otherwise the notion of velocity i don't see how it's well defined if they're if they're sufficiently far away
1: right well, do you understand a, what i'm saying that's or am I a good not question. explaining yeah. it properly no that's fine um the Oh, well, that's interesting. That's something I hadn't quite conceived of and really thought about. So, I mean, we're talking... I think we're... In that sense, we're kind of ignoring the... Mm -hmm.
0: hmm. Well, what Avi Loeb said earlier in the conversation was that as far as we can tell, the universe we live in is somewhat flat. So I thought, okay, maybe that's one way to get around that. But let's imagine that it's a sufficiently curvy, strange manifold that we... Don't actually have an idea as to what it is. How can one compare speeds? So is it just because it's flat, or is it for some other reason? Like we're making assumptions about what exists, and so let's say you just assume that there's a uniform density of particles, almost like dust, and in some cosmological models, and then you can extrapolate and get the Big Bang, whatever. So you have some model of how the galaxy is distributed in mass, and then you use that, then you're like, okay, I can get the connection from that, so that I can understand how these two points relate to one another that's how it could make sense of it but without that calculate like what's going on in the calculation that you can compare two different velocities as simple is it as simple as like a we're just looking at it like i would a baseball
1: yeah i guess i guess the i guess there's an implicit assumption that the space-time is basically flat between the two of you and that you then get a Doppler, you know, then then the Doppler shift is solely due to the velocity of the object and not due to any space-time curvature. And I think that's the general, I think that's the basic assumption because, you know, you, you could be wrong. I mean, so imagine that, imagine that our solar, I mean, we don't believe this is the case, but imagine that our solar system is sitting in the middle of a dark matter cloud, right? And then now now you have now you have a gravitational um you have a gravitational redshift you know coming into play that you don't know about. So now you're you know you would get the wrong answers for the velocity because you don't have the space time curvature down correctly. So so I think the implicit assumption is that it's flat. And there's no dark matter cloud. <laughs> right,
0: right. The more that is assumed in a theory, the more likely it is to be wrong. That's a quote from one of your papers. And then, So this is an argument about parsimony. Then, to me, what I'm wondering is, the reason why I dislike arguments about parsimony is because it would lead you to idealism. That is, mind is all that exists. Okay, why would it lead you to that? Because mind exists in the sense that, in the sense of Descartes. So you believe that you're conscious. Okay, so then what you see in front of you is like contents within your mind. And then to posit that there's an external world is a second ontological step which means it's actually easier to just assume that this is all occurring in mind then you're like well if it's in mind then why are there regularities well you could say there's regularities in mind this is something that bernardo castrop argues he says that actually idealism is the the best philosophical thought if one is to take parsimony seriously I'm curious, why don't you take the step of just saying idealism is correct? Unless you do. Maybe you do. I don't know what your philosophical framework is. Why don't you take that step if you're making an argument about parsimony, that less assumptions are better?
1: Right. So, so maybe, <clears throat> so maybe to answer that, it's better for me to talk about what we mean or why why one would invoke parsimony in that particular argument so in my theoretical my more recent theoretical work i have i've taken the a very a very different perspective so you know typically we have a um you know, we have these ideas of physical law. There's a physical law. And, um, and I think you were, um, talking to Eric Weinstein about this, you know, what makes the electron fall? What makes it obey the physical law? Right. And, um, and so we have this idea that there are these, there exists these laws that we discover. Right. And, um, you know, so where do the laws come from? You know, you worry about that and we worry about whether different, you know, if there's a multiverse, different universes, could they have different laws? You know, you have that question come up, um, which is a natural question when you have no idea where the laws come from, right? <laughs> so, so the, so you either believe that, you know, Mother Nature has, you know, dictated a set of laws and then somehow make sure that the electron follows them right <laughs> and so you have that going on or um, or is it something else and so the I guess I've I've come to think of it more in terms of you know the law when we talk about laws we're usually talking about our mathematical form, formulation of physics right because this is what we use to make quantitative predictions and when i when we say quantitative what do we mean well we're assigning numbers to things right so so how does one assign numbers to things and that's so that's a question and that one could ask and i and i had worried about this in graduate school i got it was frustrating i i had asked a very simple question i would, and I was trying to understand you know, I said, why is it when I take two pens and I combine them with another pen, I always get third three pens why why does that happen and i and I wasn't of course asking why is it three and not four? I know that it's three. I'm very familiar with this um but what I was wondering is, is this a is this an experimental result? where you had to do an experiment to find out that it was three and, or is it a theoretical result where this is how you define three or is it a definition? Do we define three this way? Um, where, what, what do we mean when we, you know, when we think about that? And so I had, had asked that question in graduate school and that, that really didn't go well because the, um, I ended up having several professors make, make some fun of me basically. Oh, and, Oh, I think we're having internet
0: connections here. Huh. It might be on my side because you're completely fine as far as oh, I can okay. tell. Yeah. So, so the, um, <clears throat> it was at the moment that I read that in your paper once that I realized, man, this guy is far more interesting than I initially thought. I mean, I already <laughs> thought you're interesting and I was well, excited to talk you. to you just about UAP. And then I saw that and then I was like, okay, so this person is actually thinking about physics not in the same way, not to say that you think about it, not to compliment myself by saying I think about it anyway, like you, but I'm saying there's similarities. You, you definitely are thinking foundationally and I'm yeah, so super excited. Okay, great. So it's right, essentially yeah. the effectiveness of mathematics.
1: Yeah. So why, so why does, why does math work? Why does that, why does that work? And I, and yeah, so I'd had, um, several professors would make fun if I asked a question in class. Oh, here. Kevin, who doesn't know why we add things when we combine them as a question and that was that was a little frustrating, and some of the graduate students made fun as well that's fine um it what it did for me though is it solidified in my mind that they don't actually know the answer to the question either no, no it was it was cl- very obvious to me no one had the answer to that, and so it remained kind of a mystery in my mind. And um, and in some way, clearly became a driving force. You know, at some level, uh, was wasn't one that I was aware of initially. Um,
0: Meaning that it was at the back of your mind.
1: Probably at the back of my mind, and when the time came for it to be, you know, relevant, it it was right there and ready. So,
0: mm-hmm. and it became relevant years mm-hmm. later because you were an undergrad. So it was years. It was it.
1: years later. Yeah. It was years later, and I was um, pretty much when I was working at NASA, I was trying to develop machines that autonomously performed experiments. So I didn't want to do, I wanted to do calculations with questions. So the idea is that you can, you have an issue you want to resolve, but you can't ask that question directly. But you can ask questions that, have answers that imply um, the answers to that question you do want to ask.
0: I don't understand. Give me an example.
1: Yeah. So you might want to know, you know, is there, you know, you've got a Martian rover, it's looking at a rock and there's green stuff on it and you want to say, Oh, is that stuff alive? Right. That's the question, the Uh issue when you want to resolve, is that alive? Well, you can't, the rover can't just ask, are you alive? Right. That doesn't work that way. So it has to perform an experiment. So, you know you could do raman spectroscopy and collect uh, a spectrum you know a raman spectrum from that and get some idea of what molecules are present and that's a question and it gives you an answer and the answer would be what molecules are present and then the question is does th- then you have to worry about whether that result that that um that assertion that you get from from analyzing your data then how that, um, is relevant to the issue? What you want to resolve? You know, how how relevant is this to whether it's alive or not? Yeah. So, is it better to step on it and see if it dies, or is it better to take a Raman spe- spectrum and look at the? Now what's the a Raman
0: spectrum? Like Raman as in ramen noodles, or
1: uh, R A M A N. So it's a, it's basically you um, shine a laser beam at this, and the light scatters off the. Um, the light scatters off the the molecules, so it doesn't destroy the specimen. It, right. Okay. Cool. It doesn't destroy the specimen. Right. So, so that was the original idea. So I wanted to do computations with questions, and I had had some experience in deriving uh, probability theory, and so I was using that as kind of a framework for getting started, and the basically what you what.
0: Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
1: When you work with that, what you realize is that if I want to assign a number to a question, actually, I'm assigning numbers to pairs of questions, and I'm, want to quantify how relevant uh, question A is to my, my, the issue I want to resolve. Um, So this idea of relevance. So I want to assign a number to this relevance, which is a function of two questions. And um, so how do you consistently assign numbers um, to this quantity? And that's the question, that's that's what you need to ask at that point. And you find that if you, you can combine questions in different ways. so You can ask, you know, is it um, this or that, right? So you can use or as a conjunction and um, you can join two questions with an or. And, you know, are you drinking Pepsi or Mountain Dew? It could be your question. And when you do that, you find that you know, the or, the logical or there when combining two questions is commutative and, and it's also associative if you included more questions. And that puts some serious constraints on the numbers that you would assign to that joint question based on, as a function of the, the questions that you're joining. And you can show that it has to be additive um, or, or an isomorphic, it has to be isomorphic to additivity. So you can choose it to be additive and keep it simple. Um, And that's basically how that work started. So, so. um, And you were a graduate at this point?
0: You were a graduate in NASA?
1: or yeah, I was a, I was a research scientist at NASA at that point. Hmm, hmm,
0: hmm. Because the work that I see you doing with saying that so-and-so is commutative, so-and-so is associative, so-and-so is distributive, and therefore has this implication to physics that work, I see it as being recent. So you took that thinking from your research days and then applied it or did you apply it back then?
1: No, I, I didn't I didn't I didn't apply it for oops, my computer has an error report.
0: That's Sorry. fine, that's fine. I'll ask I'll re ask the question. What I'm wondering is as you're a research scientist there, I don't know how old you were, let's say thirty, twenty eight, thirty five? Yeah,
1: it was two thousand, so i would have been about thirty five, yep.
0: Okay, so you're 35. Great. Oh, I got one of those numbers. Okay, so you (laughs) were 35. You weren't thinking right then about the foundations of physics. You were just trying to solve this problem of how can we ask it a question and get some feedback? How
1: can we quantify questions? That was basically what I was doing. Yeah.
0: Then maybe 10 years later, you realize, oh, okay, okay, wait, that's interesting. I can take that and let's see how far I can run with it and apply it to... The foundations, of yeah.
1: Well, around that time that I was trying to quantify questions, I had seen a talk by Ariel Katicha, who is a colleague of mine now here at SUNY Albany. Um, and he's he's one of the reasons I'm here at SUNY Albany now. We, we became friends, and and um, so he had given a talk on uh foundations of quantum mechanics, and he used some of the similar arguments, you know, of associativity and distributivity to um to derive the the um, the Feynman path integral formulation of quantum mechanics. So he had done something very similar to this with experimental setups. So the idea was that you're, he was quantifying an experimental setup. And then if you combine, so you've got an experimental setup where you've got a light going through a single slit, and then you've got another experimental setup with light going through a single slit, and now you combine these two, and now you have two slits. Um, so how do you perform computations with these I and
0: mean, forgive my ignorance it's been a little while but is, is Feynman's path integral is that how is that related to Feynman's he has a checkerboard as well I believe Feynman checkerboard yeah Feynman that's not chessboard. yeah that's not
1: they're not directly related but is, I thought that
0: one was the continuous limit of the other so they're not related
1: oh oh what yeah what, well you could certainly the path integral would be a continuous Version of the checkerboard,
0: yeah. Okay, because actually, I hadn't heard about the checkerboard until when I was reading about how you took causal sets and then said, "Well, you can recreate some of the characteristics of Feynman
1: checkerboard." Feynman's checkerboard.
0: Mm-hmm. And Then I was like, right. "What? That is the checkerboard? Whatever. You get the idea." Okay, continue, please. Sorry that I'm interrupting. I'm just making sure I'm understanding it correctly. Right.
1: So I had seen, so I would seen a talk by Ariel Katicha about um, experimental setups. And how to quantify experimental setups, and so that had stuck in my mind, and um, so it wasn't until years later that I was, you know, when um, I was working with uh, Philip Goyal, who was he was at uh, at the Perimeter Institute at the time, uh, near where you are, and um, we were talking about quantum mechanics and how similar. Um, the Feynman rules, uh, which are basically when you are, you know, combining two things in two um, experiments in parallel, you basically sum the complex numbers. And when you put them in series, you multiply complex numbers. And those are your quantum amplitudes. And we were talking about how similar those rules look look to um, the sum and product rules of probability theory. And And I mentioned in passing, I said, well, you know, you can drive the sum and product rules with, you know, these basic algebraic symmetries. So probably you should be able to do that with quantum mechanics as well. And we started working on it that evening and um, made a good bit of progress. And um, then um, got our friend John Skilling involved and uh, basically wrote their first paper, our first pass at that work there. That was based on that. So that's basically how that those ideas came about. And so some more recently, I'm working with John Skilling, and I think that's the paper you're looking at.
0: Yeah. for the audience, there are about six papers of yours that I find to be ex- extremely interesting. And I'm going to state them, and, anyone, and I'll list them in the description so people can view them. So the ones that I find interesting are the origins of complex quantum amplitudes and Feynman rules, pretty much. Quantum theory and probability theory, their relationship and origin and symmetry, a potential foundation for emergent space-time. Now that one I wasn't able to go through in detail. The understanding of the electron. Hmm. Now that one, that one's absolutely, that one's more philosophical. And that one, you're a sole author. hmm Okay. The arithmetic of uncertainty that unifies quantum formalism and relativistic space-time. That one I made notes on, which I'm going to ask All you right, about. Great. And then the last one, an essay. Sorry, there's two ones. There's one that's an introduction to influence theory. Let's see, a couple of these are extremely similar. So the foundation of emergent spacetime. What are and you calling the influence, influence theory? theory is,
1: that that's the uh, yeah influence theory basically came out of yeah it came out of the um, emergent space-time work.
0: Okay, and is that where you have a chain and then one influences one? Other than that, right. you're calling influence theory. Yeah. Okay. Because when I first read that, I thought it's like influence theory. I hadn't heard about that. Is that some way of speaking about causation? Is that some? Is that something new that I shouldn't? So it's something you've coined. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, we coined okay. that. The, uh, yeah. Okay. So the idea is that the, you know, what really matters is what you're really quantifying in quantum mechanics is you're quantifying interactions. Um, you're interested in what happens when something interacts with something else, so we worked to strip that down to the bare essentials and um and ended up with these uh partially ordered sets of of interaction events
0: yeah there it's definitely the bare essentials,
1: yeah, and then we work to quantify it and you know how how can you quantify it? well there's basic symmetries. That are that are imposed by the by the basic structure that you've assumed, and those symmetries tell you how to quantify it, and then the laws emerge as constraint equations that enforce those symmetries. I was talking
0: to someone now, and I'm not sure how far in the AMA my AMA you got, but I was someone was saying, well there are different kinds of podcasts and there's like the Joe Rogan podcast. And so and then I said, mine is more of office hours. I feel like I have a professor and I want to make sure that I understand what the professor is saying. It's office hours. It's not, don't think of it like it's an interview. Don't think of it like it's a documentary or Joe Rogan. I'm not here to just have a beer and have a conversation Although all. We can do that. I'm, I'm like, I have questions and I want to know.
1: Yeah. It does feel like office hours. That's what I, yeah. That's one thing I enjoy about watching, you know, watching your podcasts. Great,
0: great, great. Okay. It's
1: great fun. And it's in, and it's informative for that reason. You go into some depth and it makes it really interesting.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so, so I have some notes here. And I want to make sure that I'm understanding the paper of Arithmetic of Uncertainty. So and so. Okay. Showing that the mathematical structures of quantum theory and relativity form from pure. Ah, 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 ah. So he said, well, that's more of a question for later. Start. So this is what I understand what you've done. And so please correct me. You start from assuming or suggesting that commutativity, distribution, associativity are so fundamental that they're taken as axioms. Then you define a scalar. You're like, okay, then we're like, now that we got a scalar, let's make a two vector. And then let's put some extra structure on that two vector for multiplication, almost like an algebra.
1: We don't put the structure on you. The structure is imposed by the symmetry.
0: Then you get something that resembles the polymatrices. Then you say, well, let determinant equal 1. And then you get something that resembles the polymatrices even more. This time you give them generator status, and you call the matrices A, B, and C. Then you say there's an unknown phase associated with each unit determinate 2 vector. And I, I I had a question there. Let's forget about that. Then you have an unknown phase. And then you say, well, this unknown phase, let's give it uniform probability Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you get that phase and you say yes then you say that this phase has to be continuous necessarily necessarily and thus you've found a way to derive continuity instead of assuming continuity okay then you get born's rule by saying the ignorance of the phase means you can only measure averages and here's one way here's the way you measure averages now please correct me if what I'm saying is foolish or it's incorrect. Yeah,
1: no, you've got you've got much much of the basic idea. The the um <clears throat> so so it it starts with referring back to our earlier work with quantifying things with the scalar. So if you're going to use one number to quantify something, then um if the so yeah, so I quantify one object with a number and I quantify this object with another. And now if I combine them in some way, and this combination rule is commutative and associative, then the number that I assign to the combination, I want that to be some function of the two numbers that I've assigned to the original objects. Um, if, they, if I don't, then they're not related to each other. And yeah, then yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, no right, point. Right, and then right? you have the... I believe those are
0: the gamma numbers and you...
1: Right. So now, yeah, so here we'll give this a number and we give this a number and then combine them and we'll give this a different number. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what number, you know, I might have some choices to what numbers I assign to these two, but then what number should I assign to these two? That's going to should be some function of the number I assigned to this one and a function of the number I assigned to this one. But it shouldn't matter you know, whether I join them this way or join them that way, right? They're commutative, they're associative. So if I'm joining three, I can combine them together like this, or I can combine it like that. So that constrains, severely constrains, the number that you assign to the three objects or the, the joint object. And it turns out you can prove that that has to be isomorphic to addition. So it's basically addition or um, something that is a an invertible transform of addition. So multiplication is an invertible transform of addition as well. Yeah, so that's, so that's basically why I could take, I can take this stuff and give it a number two and take this one and give it a number one. And when I put them together, what number do I assign this group? Well, it's one plus two, three. And that's actually why you some things when you combine them. That answers my original question in graduate school. But it has to do with associativity and commutativity of the joining operation.
0: What struck me was how elementary it was, and I wonder, not to demean it, but how the heck is it that other people haven't come up with this? It's so elementary. It's so when simple. Look, it's <laughs> the opposite of demeaning. Sorry, I'm complimenting. No, you. I, I'm wondering. I agree. <clears throat> I actually feel asinine that I didn't come up with this. But it almost looks so obvious that it doesn't require a saying.
1: Right. The the there was a um we've revised that paper now or we're working on revising this paper. We work with a pair of numbers um because we have a quantity and an uncertainty. We acknowledge that you're always going to be uncertain. At a fundamental level, you're going to have some uncertainty. So the question is, how do you account for this uncertainty? Um, you could, you know, your first response would be to say, oh, it's quantity plus or minus some sigma, right? That would be your first go-to. But but you, we basically account for the fact that there might be a more subtle or more intimate relationship there. And so we say, let's just start with two numbers and then see how those numbers have to evolve, you know, as we do these, perform these um, acts of combination.
0: So was it that at first you tried naively the plus or minus and then it didn't lead anywhere fruitful? So then you're like, how about I be more general and say, I don't know how to combine these two.
1: No, I guess I was talking about um, quantity plus uncertainty.
0: Yes yes yeah oh and then I was wondering why did you make that generalization like what spurred you to do so
1: right so the idea was to treat them as two two numbers and figure out how do the symmetries the algebraic symmetries dictate we deal with these numbers so with addition it's it's quite simple when you um or so when you have just combination with associativity and commutivity then it's just a transform, an invertible transform of component-wise addition. So, so you can just use addition for that. So, um, that's pretty straightforward. Multiplication's more interesting. So, so now if you um, combine objects in series, and now you have um, associativity, commutativity, associativity, and distributivity, and that imposes some extra constraints so with a scalar you then get also get addition but it can't be addition because you've already used that for the for the um parallel combination so it has to be a transform of addition you can prove that multiplication works and that's what gives you the sum in product rows and product rules in probability theory but when you have two numbers you um you don't have simple multiplication anymore you're basically dealing with two by two matrices and it turns out that there are three different ways to do it. So so we get so we get matrix A, we get matrix B. Non-degenerate. Yeah, that's right. Three that are non-degenerate. So matrix A, B, and C. And so we then um back up and say, look, we are originally we're dealing with, you know, the original motivation was to quantify um, objects um, while taking into account uncertainties so what happens if we now actually treat these as uncertainties using probability theory and if you do that you find that only matrix a works in that case and it gives you complex addition and complex multiplication so you then are You then learn that what you what you're constrained to do in that situation is to use complex numbers, and um, if you then want to assign a scalar um, to that same system, then you can derive the Born rule that way, and so that that gives you the complex formalism of quantum mechanics. One of my questions was basically what
0: instigated this was why is it it's so fun it's so elementary. But I'm wondering, how the heck did people not
1: see this before? That's a good question. I don't know. I think that part of it is perspective. I don't hear your name
0: on a list of toes, theories of everything, with string and loop and so on. Not saying that you claim to have a theory of everything, but you definitely derive, or more fundamental, which to me puts you in the class of a theory of everything. Why haven't I heard it?
1: Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I don't know why either. That's a good question. It seems to take several years for some of this work to filter into the community. Um, there's a there's a delay. Uh, people are working on their own ideas, right? And it's hard to take the time to look at somebody else's ideas and to do that. Well, you have to. It's a deep dive, right? So so it takes time and effort. Um Why hasn't it been done before? I think it's a matter of perspective. Um, If you're thinking of the laws of physics as laws, you know, that are dictated by Mother Nature, um, then you go about handling them differently. So how should they be conceptualized that are not law? I mean, here in this case, we're thinking about it in terms of quantifying things. You know, if I want to assign numbers to things, how do I, how can I do it? And so so it's a rather unique perspective that, and it, it bore fruit. It was, it was, it was useful. Mm-hmm.
0: There was one term in your paper that I kept getting confused by. It was quantification. It's, it's not a term that I've heard. Well, it suggests something, but I wasn't sure, like, what's the definition of quantification and how are you using it?
1: Well, I mean, I use that just to describe the act of quantifying something. So I assign numbers. How How do you go about assigning numbers to things? And, um, and then, you know, and, and of course, then the real question is what happens to how do you assign a number to combinations of things? And that's what we're really after.
0: Okay, well, let's just finish up. So what's your opinion on, I'll just read through the questions so that you get an idea, and then you can answer them. Quickly. Sure. Okay, go back to the beginning. So opinion <laughs> on string theory, opinion on loop, opinion on geometric unity, opinion on Stephen Wolfram's.
1: Don't, ah, don't wow. answer
0: Don't answer any of these. Yeah, I'm going to come okay. back. I just want you to get the lay of the land. A picture. All right. Okay. Wh- where do these laws... Okay. Why these laws and not another? And then two audience questions. One was from Stephen Paul King. He says, ask him about space, his space-time ideas. You've already talked about that. And robot scientist concept. I have no clue what that is. Maybe you do. And then Steve Scully wants to know about... Nothingness and infinity being the same. Let's get to this. Opinion on string theory. We can go through this quick. What's your opinion on string
1: theory? String theory, it's tough. It's, it's, I think it's too high level. The, um, I'm, I'm work, I guess I'm working at a level where I'm deriving. I mean, we just talked about how, I de- how we're deriving the fact that you need to use complex numbers in quantum mechanics, right? And the fact that, you know, how do you manipulate these complex numbers, this, the sum and product rules? Um, that's what I'm working to derive. In string theory, there's a different approach. The idea is instead of point particles, we're going to have loops of string, and then we're going to just apply quantum mechanics to it. Um, so it's too high level. I mean, you're applying quantum mechanics. Well, but where does quantum mechanics come from? Why do you use quantum mechanics and not something else? Right. And that's, that's the question I would ask.
0: I have a question about that. Why is it that you derive quantum mechanics and not QFT?
1: Well, we, well, we, we haven't, we haven't applied it to, so we haven't applied it to space-time yet. So it's, you know, we're just you're working at the basics what happened how do you quantify a quantum system well you're going to need these complex numbers that's what we have derived that how do you calculate probabilities from those complex numbers well you derive the born rule um so it's it's building up from the bottom so what are your thoughts on loop similar and geometric unity um i, I think it's a similar you know my my opinion similar at the the levels you know you're you're constructing your fundamental theory too high up. How about Wolfram's?
0: I see Wolfram's as being amenable to yours, or yours amenable now, to his it. is very... Yeah, no, his
1: is a very low-level theory, and that, that I think I'm more, you know, agreeable toward. Um, I don't tend to see the universe as a computer, so I differ in that aspect. Does your theory have anything to say
0: about black holes or the information paradox or the beginning of the universe, or is it too... Early right now to say it's too early,
1: yeah.
0: Okay, now just two audience questions, and that's it, man. So, Stephen Paul King wants to know ask him about space time ideas or his space time ideas. We've done that, and his robot scientist concept.
1: He is amazing, in my opinion. (laughs) Thank you very much, Steve. Wow, um, oh, the space time business first. Um, I should, I should be a little clear about the work that we've done with influence theory. One of, we've run into some difficulty in that we can describe one dimension, one plus one dimensional space-time very nicely. Three plus one is very weird and very difficult. So it's not clear that we can handle, the theory seems to be too linear. Um, So three plus one space-time is difficult. However, that being said, I can use our work in influence theory to derive the dimensionality that, you know, space... in, In this theory, space is a description, right? Space isn't a physical thing. It's a description of events. So I can derive how many numbers you should need to describe events generally. And I actually have such a definition. And the result is three plus one, three dimensions of space, one plus time, only thing that works, and based on symmetries in that theory. But but strangely, the theory cannot actually, I haven't been able to use the theory to describe three plus one-dimensional space-time. I can't use it to just use, use four numbers to describe events. And so we're kind of stuck there, which is why I kind of, I for a year, basically took off... Uh, from working on that work and then teamed up with John Skilling to work on the paper that you're reading now with, you know, Arithmetic of Uncertainty.
0: As for the robot scientist concept, is that the same as the the Mars rover?
1: Yeah, that's similar to the quantifying relevance. So the idea, oh, I used to joke, you know, when I, when I would give a talk on this, I would give a joke, you know, joke around how, you know, I'm trying to, um, make experimentalists obsolete by automating an experimental design. Um, of course, that's not going to happen. But um, but that that's the basic idea is to perform... If you can perform computations with questions, which turns out to be very closely related to information theory, it's, it's information theory plus a little bit more, which is nice. Um, and you can then use that to for machines to figure out what experiments to do to accomplish um, certain, you know, resolve certain issues to basically accomplish certain goals. So if you want to learn something about that rock, you, you can actually perform computations to figure out which experiments to perform. And based on the data that you get, you can figure out which experiment to perform next and so on until you reach the requisite precision. That's the basic idea with that behind that work
0: great the last question is from steve scully who has a youtube channel that i'll link in the description he steve scully has a theory of everything and he wants to know just for the audience steve scully has an idea that nothing is the same as infinity i don't know if you've heard about this maybe you'll get emails from people suggesting theories of everything to you and saying you should read this or you should read my paper and so on well, have you come across this idea that zero is the same as infinity or infinity is the same as zero Asked exactly how, I don't know, because I don't understand Steve Scully's theory yet. I haven't gone through it, but hmm. what do you make of that?
1: That's interesting. I, no, I don't, I don't get emails about that. I usually get emails with pictures of lights and people are asking me what they are. And I usually respond by saying they're, they appear to be lights. I what they're attached to I can't possibly tell you because I, <laughs> they're lights um so that's what I usually get from in my emails the let's see I thought you were going somewhere else is like, zero is, I'm like, oh, is is zero equal to infinity well that's difficult infinity isn't really a number right infinity is a concept so so it's hard to imagine any kind of equivalence between a, a number and a concept. And now, now zero a number, Ugh, that's a little messy too. Zero is also a concept, right? But they're different concepts. So I don't, I don't see how they're the same, but I'm not familiar with his work. So, okay. So his actual
0: question that was mine is, is it possible that the universe is infinite? That is that there's no end to how large or how small objects in the universe can be relative to one another? and that if the overall system is to be comprehensible, it is only by us recognizing how all these apparently separate and distinct systems actually share some underlying mechanism.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how to begin. Um, <clears throat> so I, I it, it sounds like his idea is that things can be arbitrarily small and arbitrarily large and there's no limit to this. Well, hmm. Yeah, I don't know what I make of that. Um, It's hard because I'm not sure how you could tell. How would you ever know that they can be arbitrarily small? Um, so usually my thinking is that if, if it, if the arbitrarily, if the arbitrary smallness of things isn't detectable, then it doesn't matter and you wouldn't you don't know you won't you won't know about it and you don't need to know about it um so so i'm not sure that it you know i i I, if i'm not sure you would notice and i'm not sure it would matter if that were the case so that's difficult
0: professor it was great Thank you
1: so much this for speaking great, with fun. me for Thank maybe you three much. or
0: four hours. I don't know how long.
1: <laughs> it was yeah, it was about I guess we're in three plus text. Where
0: can the audience find out more about you? And do you have anything to promote?
1: Oh I, I have um, let's see, Knuthlab.org is my is my um, website, so you can check that out. Um, anything I want to promote. Actually I, I do have something I want to promote. I don't have a good I'll send you the link to it um i'm working on designing a card game so this is totally out of left field i it basically came from the fact i read an article oh about two and a half years ago now where um i don't know what the percentage was but some tiny percent or something like 80 percent of americans couldn't name a living scientist and i was really struck by that i thought that's crazy Um, and, and my son came home from school that day. He was in third grade at the time and he had made some good trades with his Pokemon cards. And he was telling me all about this Pokemon card and this character, and he traded for this one. And this is better because he has this ability and this ability. And I thought, 80% Eighty percent of Americans can't name a living scientist yet, my third grade son knows all about these fictional Japanese characters and their superpowers and I thought what's what's wrong with this picture and so I've um designed a card game with scientists and um and I'm looking for scientists to actually sign up for the card game so um so I'm still trying to find scientists, and I especially want especially want women and minorities because I really want to have the game very well balanced and so that everyone's well-represented. And, um, and that's the goal is to get that game going. So if, um, any of you viewers are, happen to be scientists or, or basically, um, STEM professionals, they, they work too. Um, please consider, you know, you can email me or, um, or you can go to the link and you can um, join by creating a card for yourself.
0: Right. What about people who are illustrators, if they want to volunteer their time to make the pictures for the cards?
1: Oh, that's a nice idea. Yeah, (laughs) if somebody is interested in, uh, I was, I had planned on using mostly stock images, but I, you know, if somebody is interested in illustrating and wants to volunteer for that, that might be nice too. Yeah, it would look more pleasant
0: if there was a uniform graphic design. Yeah. Yeah as for yep that's that's interesting i know all the pokemon as well so i join your son that's on charizard <laughs> i don't know right. if you've heard of charizard that's the most valuable pokemon card to me charizard wow all right